This podcast will be done in an hour. Better make that two. I mean, we've got nothing to declare. Well, except everything that we have to say in episode 0015 of A Review to a Kill, our podcast series about the James Bond franchise, coming to you from fanboysanonymous.com. It's time to talk about one of my absolute favorites in the series, The Living Daylights. Well, who am I? I'd tell you my name, but, uh, sorry, old man, section 26, paragraph 5, I'm sure you'd understand. Ah, stuff it. I'm Tony Mango, and if you, uh, don't know who we've got going on here, I'll introduce them in a second, but you don't find m- too many normal people in this business, so I have with me Robert DeFelice. <laughs> Ding dong! Cello! <laughs> and Cal Wiggins. Here, hold on, you're dead. <laughs> Yes, I am. (laughs) Because WrestleMania just went by, and we've been talking about this leading up to this, about the whole, like, I don't know uh, how we'll be post-WrestleMania. We're recording this on the 13th of April, and um, we we got through it. (laughs) So for context, I'm super excited to be talking to you guys again. I feel like I haven't talked to you in forever. I very much overworked myself WrestleMania week to the point where I didn't even talk to you. Right. yeah. And I'm, after talking about so much pro wrestling content, I am so looking forward to talking about James Bond <laughs> just to be like, all right, we don't need to break down all the same matches and do all that kind of stuff. And if you are interested in that side of things, of course, go over to smartoutmoment.com, check out everything that's happening over there, subscribe to that YouTube channel and give that some love. Um, before we get started, let me just remind everybody about the same kind of stuff when it comes over on here. Obviously, if you are enjoying this podcast, then show us by doing the normal things that anybody would do on any kind of a YouTube channel. Hit the like button, hit the subscribe button, ring the little notification bell, hit the join button, which is the same as the Patreon. Hit the uh, follow and the share and the favorites and all the other kind of things like that. Drop a comment below and tell us your thoughts on what is uh, this film and, you know, the, the pros and the cons and everything else that you want to talk about, including your thoughts on our thoughts on this movie. And if you are so inclined to help us out on the monetary side of things and you really want to help us grow, the best way to do that is the Patreon or the join thing on YouTube. There are different tiers. Uh, We've got the bonus features tier where those are like Patreon exclusive things. I'm looking to do some stuff specifically with a review to a kill that revolves around the Patreon. And one of them might be that I might do if I can sort it out. Uh, hopefully I can, some kind of videos that are kind of uh, along the 007 um, video game spectrum. Maybe try to play some like emulator type things and stuff. So if you're interested in any of that, a good way to make sure that we do that in the future is to, to hit up the Patreon. So a dollar a month goes a long way. And you know, there's the Pick Your Poison tier where if you want to make sure that we do that kind of stuff, that is the way that you can request that. And then, you know, we'll do it because you're sponsoring it directly. And... I want to play a little bit of a game here. Uh, Normally what I do is I I go through the foreign language titles and we've got a lot of very, very interesting ones here. So I'm going to give you guys a couple guesses to see if you get any close to any of these, (laughs) because some of them are not the slightest bit close to anything that anybody would have imagined (laughs) for this. So... I'll give you guys three guesses a piece. I'm going to write them down to, if you hear me clucking away on my keyboard, uh, three guesses of some alternate titles that you guys think that there might be. Okay. So 
I'll go with one. I'll go with one first. Um, a day worth living. Write this down. A day worth living. The lights are alive. <laughs> uh, Bong goes to the orchestra. <laughs> that would totally be the Japanese or one, right? Or, or opera, maybe. Actually, go, yeah, go. Bong goes to the opera. I'll get. I'll give you both on that. All right, fine. Bond versus the Soviets. <laughs> Bond invades Afghanistan. <laughs> 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 Ah. Final nobody guess room. It, nobody does it better. The fifteenth time. <laughs> <laughs> so taglines, since you mentioned nobody does it better fifteen times, are actually. Do you want to take any guesses about? Uh, just one guess, I guess, for a tagline. Um. Oh, I'm trying to think of one that would make sense based around it. Oh, you know, it might not even make sense. Uh, tagline, why didn't you learn the violin? <laughs> <laughs> Business is booming. <laughs> so the taglines are the new James Bond, dot, 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 living on the edge. Then there's living on the edge, dot, uh, period. It's the only way he lives. There's the most dangerous Bond, period, ever, period. <laughs> <laughs> then there was a combination of those James Bond 007 at his most dangerous in the living daylights <laughs> there's enigmatic period dangerous dot 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 always living on the edge they really liked that living on the edge thing and then they just said fuck it we'll just uh, go into the next movie here and just call it licensed to thrill but the foreign language titles so we got a day worth living. Bond goes to the opera or orchestra. Bond invades Afghanistan. Those are Callum's guesses. Rob's guesses are the lights are alive. Bond versus the Soviets. And nobody does it better 15 times. <laughs> Here is the list of the foreign language titles that I could track. From Argentina and Mexico. His name is Danger. <laughs> it's not. It's Bond. <laughs> yeah, it's Bond James Bond. We've established this 14 movies ago. <laughs> And I'm pretty sure that Austin Powers' middle name is Danger. Austin Danger Powers. So the Portuguese title is 007 Marked to Die. The Croatian one is The Breath of Death. And the Czech Republic is The Breath of Life. Sure, same thing, you know. Uh, yeah. Denmark has Spies Die at Dawn. That makes sense. Uh, it's kind of close to lights are alive. Estonia and Finland is 007 in the danger zone. Hi. Surprised it's not highway to the danger zone. <laughs> Ukraine's like, this is close enough. 007 live lights. Oh, see. Or maybe it's live lights. I don't know. L-I-V-E. The lights are alive. <laughs> so you, you're very close to the lights are alive on that one. Uh, Finland uh, also has, and this is the Swedish title, Ice Cold Mission, for, you know, all the ice stuff that happens in this. It's like one section. The, a movie that doesn't have any skiing and doesn't involve icebergs like some of the other movies do and whatever, but okay. Well, it does have an ice thing. That's the, um, them going across the frozen lake. Not skiing, though. I would have thought that, like, 
you know, the last couple of movies. Oh, true. Yeah, yeah, I'll give you that one. Uh, So they must have seen just that scene, and they were like, I don't know, fucking ice cold mission. Greece has, with the finger on the trigger, Hungary in deadly horror. (laughs) (laughs) Lithuania's eye daylight, like eye robot, (laughs) but (laughs) with a space. Norway is in the firing line. Because you've seen a firing line scene in this movie, right? Not a one. (laughs) Poland just says, facing death. Yes. Portugal, bland as all hell, immediate risk. (laughs) It's like, wear your hard hat in this area, it's immediate risk. Romania has Iron Curtain. The Soviet Union has, and I don't get this one at all. This is where we start getting into where people are like, maybe even more in the hard hat thing. Sparks from the eyes. Uh... <laughs> Sparks from the eyes. Uh, the Spain Catalan title is High Voltage. Uh, oh, his name is Danger. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Uh, Taiwan is Life at Dawn. Turkey Lame. is. Assassination in the sunlight. It was, it was the night, wasn't it? The first assassination. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's in the middle of the night, at but like the, midnight or something. I think. But the lights are alive, so it's okay. <laughs> My second favorite one is France. That one is killing is not playing. <laughs> <laughs> I guess it makes sense with the opening segment. <laughs> But my absolute favorite one, and maybe my favorite title out of all these that we've done so far, is West Germany's. Nobody could have possibly guessed this one either, too. That's why I was doing the guessing game. West Germany decides to take the living daylights, and they turn it into the skin of a corpse. (laughs) (laughs) Jesus Christ. The skin of a corpse. This is a fucking Hannibal Lecter title or something. The skin of our corpse. <laughs> Imagine marketing the movie like that. 007, his most dangerous ever. He's living on the edge in the skin of a corpse. <laughs> Fuck. I know we're going darker here a little bit, but wow. <laughs> so, uh, Michael G. Wilson's cameo, by the way. Uh, get that out of the way. Audience member at the Vienna Opera House. So if anybody's spotting that guy, looking for him, there he is. And before we get into the start of the movie, whatever we got to talk about, the production and why they came around this whole side of things, uh, we got to talk about Timothy Dalton, just the way that, you know, Timothy Dalton came about here. Much like Roger Moore was approached back in the day before he played the role and he was busy doing the TV show The Saint, Timothy Dalton was approached a long time ago, like we talked about, and he was almost Bond in On Her Majesty's Secret Service. And the diamonds are forever, and for your eyes only. <laughs> but he thought that he was too young, and scheduling conflicts and everything got in the way. And in the meantime, they had came across Pierce Brosnan during For Your Eyes Only, like we talked about. But he was also busy doing a TV show with Remington Steele. So they all keep coming into this cycle of like, well, we're doing TV and we're locked into a contract, so we can't do Bond. But in a couple of years, call me up kind of a thing. And Brosnan almost got this part again here. He screen tested, he was offered the part, and the producers of Remington Steel said, oh crap, if he's going to be Bond, we should opt for another season 
And then that way, we'll piggyback off of the response of him being Bond and everybody will go, oh, we can watch the James Bond TV show. But in the process, Cubby Broccoli was like, oh, no, screw that. You're not going to, you know, piggyback off of us like that. Bond is not going to be Remington Steel at the same time. Sorry, Pierce. So they went back to Dalton. It comes full circle, of course, later on for Brosnan. But there was pushback for Dalton at that point because MGM was like, no, give us something like Mel Gibson. (laughs) Uh, Christopher Reeve was one of the ones that they wanted. And Sam Neill from Jurassic Park. So we could have gotten Lethal Weapon, Superman, or Dr. Alan Grant. Alan! uh, (laughs) As... James Bond and Sam Neill was in the running for Octopussy as well. So they actually liked Sam Neill quite a bit and he could have been Bond in a lot of different ways. Mel Gibson and Christopher Reeve. Even weirder to me. I can't imagine either of them being Bond. Well, given what we know, I'm glad that Gibson wasn't Bond. <laughs> Maybe and... he would have had a, a Bond uh, a Bond girl named Sugar Dance or something. <laughs> You've seen Bond be attentive towards the Japanese. How he's got now? He's got some very interesting opinions about the Jewish <laughs> <laughs> living dangerously. <laughs> That's the next villain. Is just a Jewish guy. He's not even like a megamolo- uh, megalomaniac or something. He's just kind of like, ah, oh, this guy's a villain, and it's like, why? His name's Rosenberg. <laughs> like, you know, just kind of James Bond in the Ultimate Solution. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> Maybe that's the skin of a corpse or something. I don't know. I mean, it's West Germany was the one. So, um, Miriam Diabo. They didn't go with Gibson, but yeah. I, Christopher Reeve, he could have. I'm not a big fan of his super his Superman films, but he would have played the part. I think. I can't imagine him being Bond, and it's, it's a whole English thing. Yeah. If we end up getting Henry Cavill as Bond, which is perpetually kind of in the works, but. They, they don't really want to say if that's dead in the water or not, then that would be the second person who... Well, I mean, at the very least right now, we know he was somebody that they've had in mind. So at least he's the second person that's played Superman that could have potentially been Bond. You showed me those uh, screen tests. He looks good. And um, at the same time, too, they had thought about... Uh, oh, God, I'm blanking on his name now. Uh, Christian Bale was somebody that they were thinking about before, so... Uh, you know, we could have had Batman and Bond. When are we going to merge the uh, DC universe and the Bond universe? Maybe that's what uh, Robert Pattinson's doing. He's English. You know, maybe he could be a Bond in the future or something. Well, Mariam Diabo, as far as we're talking about casting, was originally uh, screen tested for Pola Ivanova in the last film, The View to a Kill. And they were like, well, we liked her quite a bit. She wasn't Pola, but we could bring her back for this one. And originally, the Pushkin role was going to be not Pushkin. It was going to be General Gogol, who we've been seeing in these movies. But Walter Gotel was too sick to play the part, so they kind of rearranged that a little bit. So this movie could have been Mel Gibson as James Bond. And uh, there are a series of other actresses that were reading for the part. None of them were like super big names. And then General Gogol. And it could have revolved entirely around that, which would have been such a strange movie. They also thought about making this a prequel that would have ended with Bond being given his mission for Dr. No. 
It would have been very strange. And another I pitch. I get behind that, though. He would have had to use Beretta the whole time. It would have been like, does it take place in the 50s or the 60s kind of a thing? You know, like. Of course, they went back to the whole prequel type thing. To kind of, I mean, it's a reboot. It's not a prequel, but there's people try to make the case that it's all fits and it doesn't. And another pitch would have been a different type of prequel where Bond would have been a 20 something year old and he would have been teaming up with a man named Burton Trevor, who would have been 007 at the time. And Trevor would have been killed and Bond would have avenged him. And then they would have said, you could be 007 then because you've killed the people that have killed 007. So I'm glad they didn't go in that direction either. I think that this was the right way to go where it's just, it's a new Bond and you know Bond. Let's just do Bond, kind of. Everything is Bond. Yeah, space is his. Uh, <laughs> everything else is uh, for the 15th time. Uh, let's talk about the gun barrel. We have a very 80s icon for the United Artists before that, which I really love. Gun barrel itself is just crisp and simple. Thumbs up. I don't really have anything to say about it. I'm sure that you guys don't either. I'm the only one that really pays attention to the gun barrel. That's solid. I mean, it is the first one of a new guy, too. I thought he bended his knees weird. Yeah? Yeah, that was the one thing I took away from the gun barrel. Obviously, he looks more the part than... It's the best one probably since Connery. And then Connery's one is a little bit weird because of the the step that he takes. Yeah, the jumping that. and everything. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, I thought that his... Um, the way that his feet were positioned was a little bit weird for me. I don't know if he does it differently in the next one or not. I think he does. I do know that easily Brosnan is my favorite gun barrel. So we'll get to him in a little bit. I'm going to gush about the music in this opening sequence and the rest of the film because it's so good. The music here is even better than in A View to a Kill. And I loved A View to a Kill. This was top notch. Well, first of all, this whole movie is top notch in my opinion. And the music really carries it along because it's fucking great. Do yourself a favor, go listen to the track and pieces like Hercules takes off music to my ears, literally. Um, <clears throat> and it's all like mostly variations of the main theme. So if you like the main theme, you'll like the score. And our set piece for the beginning of the film is explained to us by M. We, you know, we're carrying on with the same M from before we didn't recast. There's a training exercise. The 007 section was chosen for it. We got three agents all dressed in black. They're going to infiltrate the radar installation at Gibraltar. They've been uh, warned in advance for this. So like, it's not like, well, you're going to get the jump on them. Like, no, they're expecting you. And the agents parachute down. One of them immediately gets spotted and shot with a paintball gun because it's, it's a training exercise. Not real. We don't know at the time, but that's supposed to be 002. Not the one who died in The Man with the Golden Gun, Bill Fairbanks, but just like another 002, because I don't know why they didn't just go with 001 or something. And another one, 004 in the credits, and we find out about it later on, starts climbing the rocks and somebody spots him. So he's boned, right? You know, he's going to get a paintball shot. Kind of, no. Instead of getting a paintball shot, uh, the guy shoots uh, and kills this other person who's part of the training exercise thing. Puts a tag on the rope that 004 is climbing on. Cuts the rope and 004 gets tumbling to his death. What were you guys thinking at this point? We're kicking it right off with action and 
I was excited for this turn because, first of all, you never see like a training mission, different double O's. I thought that was fun. And I like the immediate sense of, oh shit, something's going wrong here. And it sets the tone for the rest of the movie. I thought it was a bit of a missed opportunity to do some interesting, some interesting, uh, an interesting reveal of the new Bond because they've already done the gun barrel shots. We know it's Timothy Dalton and actually they've all done the marketing based around Timothy Dalton. I would have thought it would be quite interesting because they've started the thing where it's three double O's jumping out of the plane at the same time. So if they were thinking ahead about how that was going ahead, going to go down, they could have done some sort of clever marketing thing where they've, they have cast Timothy Dalton, but they've also put rumours out there that two other people have been hired as James Bond instead. Well, and they did. Start... Go ahead. I was say, <clears throat> and then you could have basically started the movie with this scene instead, and one by one those guys could have been picked off, and then you're left with Timothy Dalton at the end of it, and then, okay, he's the Bond. You well, they, they kind of did that because they purposely, and I don't know if it translates as well. I think it translates to me. They had cast those two people because they thought that they looked the most like Roger Moore, the first one, and kind of a mix between Dalton and um, George Lazenby for the second one, just to mess with the audience, to be like, wait, did you just kill Roger Moore? Oh, wait, oh, did you just kill the other guy? Just in case people were like, you know, like when you get those people that go to movies that they don't really tend to pay a whole lot of attention to a lot of things. Like, you ever see the arguments that people have had where they're like, hey, how come Tobey Maguire's not in this movie with Iron Man? And then you're like, it's a completely different series. I mean, it might be the same in the future, but like, I've had discussions with people that have been like, utterly confused about the Spider-Man series. Because in their mind, why wouldn't it be the same movie? It's the same character. So definitely they got some people that would have been like, oh, you shot the guy. That looks like Bond. That, that, that kind of looks like Roger Moore. They killed Bond. Oh, they killed Bond number two. Now we got Bond number three and a clone kind of a thing. I really like that idea. And this is the first time I think I've ever heard Callum really put forth his marketing mind because that makes a lot of sense to me. I, I think in today's landscape, they would have totally done... That would have been the trailer. Hey, you've heard rumors. It's this guy and this guy. Bang, bang. Okay, it's Dalton. <laughs> you know? So we do see Dalton for the first time with his reaction to 004's death. And Bond also gets scared by a monkey, because why not? John Glenn absolutely loves that. And he'll do it, I think, two other times in this movie. We've seen it in every movie that he's done so far. <laughs> he really likes the idea of animal pops out and scares Bond. It's like his trope. He sees the villain shoot another guy. He's off to chase him. Side note about this bad guy. They were going to get a stuntman for the part, but Glenn said he wanted a real actor. So the guy who got the part, Carl Rigg, uh, at the time he was an out-of-work actor and he was staying home to watch his baby while his wife was away on business. And he gets a phone call for this role, leaves the baby with a neighbor, writes a note to his wife saying, I'm going to be in the next Bond film and hops on the next plane to Gibraltar. <laughs> It's like, hey, uh, can you do me a favor? Uh, I'm not, I don't want a cup of sugar or anything. Can you watch my kid? I'm going to go do a Bond movie. <laughs> See ya. <laughs> you got to imagine I his wife gets that, that note and just goes, what? <laughs> I respect that. You know, chase the dream. Yeah. Anyway, I like that one of the training guys shoots Bond with a paintball. 
and Bond just shoves him out of the way. And the guy's like, hold on, you're dead. He's <laughs> just kind of, hey, that's not how this is supposed to go. <laughs> Paying no attention to the fact that people have been murdered. And Bond jumps on the assassin's car. He's hanging onto the roof for a bit, trying to dodge some gunfire and all. So we already we are full on past the idea of like what Roger Moore has been, where you don't see Roger Moore because he's not doing any of the action sequences. Now you can see that it's Timothy Dalton hanging on as much as he can for as many of the shots as he can. I mean, they're not going to let him do everything. But we got to explore. The green screen is still very obvious and still not very impressive. There's like two shots of this where the green screen's pretty bad. Yeah. I knew you were going to bring that up too. I have a note that says Callum green screen. <laughs> we got explosives in the car and all. Bond's ramming the car into car doors and uh, they drive off the road. Bond's able to pull his backup parachute that he never disengaged and that just enough time for the guy to blow up in the car. I think it's a pretty good little taste of Bond so far as far as the action stuff goes. Yeah, it was a good action scene. I yeah. really appreciate the um the fighting in the Jeep. And then he's floating down, he sees this boat. There's this woman in a bikini who's uh, named Linda, which is, you know, I guess cuz it means like beautiful. And she's talking on her handy dandy cordless phone cuz that's like new around the time to Margot about how boring it is out there. There's nothing but playboys and tennis pros and she needs a real man. Just in time for Bond to land, go, I need to use your phone. Grab it. <laughs> Tell Margaret she'll, she'll call you back. You back. <laughs> Hang up and call MI6. Which, I'm going to say this a million times in this movie and the next one. I love when Bond's an asshole, and I love how Timothy Dalton is just... It's... He's missing a little bit of the charm in some ways, but at the same time, he's making up for it and being a jerk. <laughs> and uh, then we do get some charm, though, because... We get the first delivery of the classic line. Linda's like, you know, who are you? And he just casually is like, Bond, James Bond. Uh, <laughs> you know, exercise control 007 here. I'll report in an hour. She offers him some champagne. And of course, since she's a bikini and she's good looking or whatever, he's just like, eh, better make that too. I think it's a rock solid opener. It's not the flashiest, but it gets the job done in practically every way. We get action. We get a little bit of humor. Uh, he's already going to bed somebody. He says, Bond, James Bond. We got a fake out of a Bond death twice. One of my, it's, uh, I think my number one right now for my, uh, my opening sequences. This was, and as we'll see all throughout the film, this is like the most well-told story in Bond film. And this intro kicks it right off. And one thing I like is, and this is because of the AIDS crisis, we're not going to spend a lot of time with Magic Penis Bond here. <laughs> and I think that that allowed for the story to breathe. But we'll get into that as we go. I think, like Tony said, this opener was a very good summation of the entire movie. He got the job done with absolutely no charm or character whatsoever. <laughs> oh, I'm not telling you you're not going to like this. Callum's got it around his mid-range. Uh, I'll spoil it right now. It's my number one rank. It's it's not going to be lower than two. I'm deciding between... That or Goldfinger? Two. Yeah. So let's talk about our main theme, because I think that we all have this either number one or close to it. Uh, I've got it pretty close to it. It's not my number one, but um, The Living Daylights... 
I love this song. It's so catchy. It's it's weird in a lot of ways. But it's something that I just I can listen to it at any time. I find it one of the most fun Bond themes. It's great to sing along to, even though for the longest time I didn't know what the lyrics were. And I think I told us in maybe the the intro podcast that we did. I thought that he kept saying when the Pedro lights fade away. Because just the way that the accent comes through and, you know, when the head lights, I'm like, no, there's an extra, like, da, uh, 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 uh. I'm like, there's an extra syllable there. What is he saying? A hedger light? What's a, what's a pedro light? And I thought it was just like some British thing that I didn't know. <laughs> like, I'm like, ah, oh, well, they, you know, they call an elevator a lift over there and, you know, it maybe a pedro light is something. I don't know. And until I, like, you know, finally got a soundtrack that had like the lyrics or something to it or looked online or whatever. And I'm like, Oh, headlights makes a lot more sense, even though it really doesn't make a whole lot of sense in the grand scheme of things. But I love this song. It's so good. Yeah. This is, this song is it's I'm trying to decide what I like more that or uh, a view to a kill. I think this is an easier listen than a view to a kill. So Right now, this is my number one, but this fucking song is so good. Aha is just in their prime here. Uh, it's present all throughout the film in many different ways, and it's even better. Everything about this song just kicks all kinds of ass. It's This is probably, at least so far, the Bond song that I would listen to most regularly when I would be just listening to playlists of stuff and while I was working or whatever, and it's just, it is just unbelievably catchy. The tune is brilliant. I love the like little, like it's it's techno, but it's not too far down that line. So it kind of borders on the edge of it, where you have like little um, electronic spine noises at the very beginning of it, and it just goes all the way through. But then you have that guitar playing through throughout it. The um the lyrics don't exactly make the most sense in the world, <laughs> but it's it kind of. It, it's superseded by the actual just the way it's performed and just yeah the actual music that accompanies it i just think it's just so unbelievably easy to listen to yeah i mean if you're looking up the lyrics for this and you just say to somebody you know like uh write me a james bond theme most people are going to put something about diamonds and love and death it's highly unlikely somebody's going to have, Hey driver, where are we going? I swear my nerves are showing. <laughs> like, uh, again, it's not going to be the worst lyrics that are in a bond theme. We're going to get to Sigmund Freud, analyze this, and we're going to oh get into God. quantum of solace where they're just like, yeah, me, 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 and a bunch of beard shit that's happening on that one. I hate that song, but I love that song too. I love listening to it. It's just a garbage bond theme. Whereas this, it works in a weird way. And it's got enough of that like poetic flair to it that when you ignore how the lyrics are weird, it still sounds like there's something like, I don't know, sad about it. Cause Hey driver, where are we going? It's where my nerves are showing. Set your hopes up way too high. The living's in the way we die. That lyric right there is like, you sold me living's in the way we die. Cool. That could have even been the name of the movie, which makes a lot more sense than, I don't know. His name is danger. or something. Instead of a corpse. But comes the morning when the headlights fade away. 100,000 people, I'm the one they blame. I've been waiting long for one of us to say, save the darkness, let it never fade away. Ah, love it. 
And it's just, it's so catchy to listen to. It's just. It's so good. You catch yourself just, ah, living daylights, just in the middle of nowhere or something. And you can attest to this because I'll just break yeah. it out while we're doing soundtracks. <laughs> Over the past uh, couple of things that we've recorded every once in a while, you're just kind of like, living daylights. All right, I think I'm ready to go. Kind of like. <laughs> the visuals aren't my favorite. Uh, I've seen this movie maybe about 25 times or something in my life. And I can't tell you anything outside of the pop of the gunshot and the name of the film. Even I've watched it three times this week. I can't even tell you anything beyond that because it's just sort of, it's blah. It's as bland as the rest of the movie. (laughs) That'll be your running gag here. I I'll agree. The Timothy Borton. Kind of <laughs> uh, I'll agree about the intro, not the rest of the film. Yeah, it's not. It's not that it's like. It's just not all that stylized, you know. It's a lot of actual people and not the silhouettes. The weird effects don't really stand out to me. It's yeah, it's kind of, it's bland. It's the most bland part of this entire movie, I think. Just happens to have a really good theme that backs it up. And let's go to the sniper was a woman section here. This is basically what the movie was built around. This is the short story that they were like, we can do something based off of this. We're in Bratislava, Czechoslovakia, or as uh, General Olaf would say, Czechoslovakia. (laughs) He's got lots of tank divisions. And Bond meets up with an agent named Saunders, head of Section V, Vienna, who is immediately pissed off at him in like M mode. You're bloody late. This is a mission, not a fancy dress ball. And of course, because this is how Dalton plays Bond, which I love, of course, he's scowling already. He's like, we have time. Like, God damn it. You know, kind of. He seems so miserable. He seems just like, I don't want to like if I get fired, I get fired. Fuck you. Like, And that's actually his like his goal. Dalton has said before he approached this as well. If I were Bond, at this point in my career, I would just be like, oh, fuck all this. And like, yeah, I'm I'm a murderer and I'm whatever. And I, I got to be this cold killer. And he's like, I wanted Bond to be kind of like adversarial in a different way and, and kind of just like over it. Like if I, I mean, he'll, he'll say it later on. He's just kind of like, if, he, if I get fired, then fuck it kind of a thing. Which I think is uh, it's an interesting way of doing it. It's not my perfect Bond, because I, I think you need, do need a little bit more charm than what we've got in some ways, but I do like jerk Bond of just, you know, shut the fuck up, Saunders. We got time. And we get our first little gadget here. Uh, some mini binoculars. We've got three binoculars in this movie. <laughs> they really liked the binocular gimmick. Um, since they're smaller than normal, people classify that as a gadget because it's just like well it's opera house thing kind of it's different but you're not going to hear me tout this is like the best offering Q branch has given us definitely nobody remembers that he's scoping out the target he can't help but notice the lovely girl with the cello there's bond you know the whole like (laughs) but even if you look at it like that at this point in your career is it not just like, oh, well, look, another hot trick. <laughs> sure, yeah, I mean, he's like... probably betted thousands of women at this point. But she is hot, so. 
Um, Koskov's going to leave the concert at the interval, so they head across the street to another building. And I got to say, I love the spy work type of stuff here. I love that, like, Bond has this Velcro, stra- Velcro strap that he covers up the white for his tuxedo. And he's, again, really cold when he just says turn off the lights because it's going to be like he's going to kill somebody right here. It's got that killer kind of thing. You know, it, it, again, it's missing some of the funny quips and all, but I, I really like that that feels like something that would actually happen on a mission. So what is there, two years in between this and the view to a kill? I think so. I maybe, maybe three. It might be a little jarring, especially for those who at this point have probably grown up with more back-end Connery or just straight more. But I think this is a very welcome change of pace. I just feel like it It does lack too much charm. He's almost robotic in his approach to everything, which, again, it can have... I can understand why people will appreciate that side of it. I just feel it goes too far the wrong way. Overcorrecting, kind of? Yeah, I mean, I can understand the idea if he's trying to get across the approach that oh, Bond just doesn't really care anymore and he's just a gun for hire, pretty much. And Well, not a gun for hire, he's just working for the he's just killing people and he doesn't really see any sort of like enjoyment out of it anymore. It just feels, especially if you go from more into this, it feels so out of place. Hmm. I can see and, that argument. And, yeah, I can, I can honestly, upon watching this, I can understand why a lot of people like Dalton as Bond. I can also understand why they killed the franchise pretty much after his tenure as it as well. So it's, you, again, you can see both sides of it. I was of the opinion that it was a bit too, he, he didn't, he didn't, ex, he didn't seem to fit the character well. It's like he was taking it in his interpretation, which I appreciate because Moore took it in his own interpretation, but I didn't like the interpretation he took. So it's not like I don't respect him for taking his own interpretation. It's just not what not for wanted. you. Yeah. It wasn't for me. Uh, Living Daylights is one of those movies that a lot of people are very like, like Rob and I are very much like, this is great. And then a lot of people are like, "Ah, there's a lot of things I don't like about it. And Dalton, for that matter, too, is you either seem to love or hate Dalton. It seems like that's kind of how people go. It's not not even so much that I dislike a lot of this movie. I just don't remember a lot of it. I read my notes. That's probably how I'm going to remember it, because... If I was to just sit here and just after watching it and try and present back to you what happened, I probably can remember half the movie. I think so that's a fair enough assessment too. I saw Octopussy. <laughs> like Octopussy was just there for me. Yeah, that's why it's that's why it's not like super far down the bottom. I still think it's a it's a good movie. I'm trying to maybe I'm overstating the um, the blandness aspect of it just the comedic effect. It is a good movie. That's why it isn't super low down. But I just don't think it's it doesn't connect with me. I don't I didn't have as much fun watching this movie as I have done with other movies. I mean, he will eventually get around to the quips. I think that the franchise was just missing this element of like, you are a killer and kind of all around an awful person. Yeah, it's it's weird because because Craig is my favorite Bond. And Craig, you'd say, is probably more akin to Dalton than any other Mm -hmm. Bond. There's something about Craig which exudes some sort of real charisma in the way that he approaches this pretty much sadistic, like, vicious killer. And I just don't think Dalton has that. Maybe I'm alone in thinking that, but I just feel like... I feel like Craig is what Dalton 
could have been or should have been for the character that he was trying to play. And that's probably why I appreciate Craig more. I can see that argument. I I put Dalton higher, but I definitely can see that argument for sure. But they got this giant sniper rifle, which is like, geez, you know, you know, take out the whole block with that kind of thing. And I like that when he's loading up, you know, Saunders is reminding him that this is his baby of a mission. He's planned it out to the last detail. And immediately Saunders loses his credibility because he's like, oh, you want the soft nose bullets, right? And Bond's like, no, steel tip. KGB snipers use body armor. Just no. Yeah, g- Give me the bullets. I'm the guy who's going to shoot the person. Shut up. Kind of a thing. Um, we had that line. Section 26, paragraph five. Need to know basis. I'm sure you understand, which we'll call back later on. And Koskov specifically requested Bond to protect him because he's under the impression that Bond's the best. And I love that Bond barely reacts outside of a minor, like, all right, kind of face, like, sure, I'm the best, whatever, kind of a thing. You you do get the sense by their interactions that they have history, him and Saunders. A little bit, yeah, that it's just kind of like, oh, this is one of the stuffy uh, guys at the office. And Saunders kind of looks at Bond as like, oh, that's that jerk that can just kind of like uh, get the job done. And I know he's going to do that, but do I got to be working with that guy today? Kind of a thing. Like, you know, I mean, later on, they're going to uh, have a, a much better relationship based off of this. But yeah, you can get the impression that they're not on on good uh, terms. <laughs> And uh, Koskov's going to escape by climbing out the window of the bathroom. Uh, Bond notices that the sniper is the girl with the cello. And instead of killing her, he shoots the gun and, you know, uh, gets a little bit of her arm. Uh, deliberately missing, as Saunders <laughs> clarifies. And they're on the run. Bond's got a point, though. He Saunders plans on putting him in the trunk of the car. And Bond's exactly right. He's like, that's the first place that they'll look. So he tells... Koskov get in the front, hands the gun and the equipment to Saunders, tells him to lose it. He'll get him across the border. How? Well, sorry. Section 26, paragraph five. I'm sure you understand. So again, smug asshole bond. Always a thumbs up on my end. <laughs> when I heard that line, I knew I was like, okay, that's one of Tony's favorites. He just gives it right back to him. Like, oh, I'm on a need to know basis. Fuck you, pal. You're now on a yeah. need to know basis. This mission's your baby, huh? Oh, fuck your baby. <laughs> And he's That's totally what that right. I said uh, earlier that when, before he got on that plane to Gibraltar. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck my baby. Toss it to the neighbor. <laughs> uh, Bond's plan is to take Koskov to the Trans Siberian Pipeline where his ally, Rosika Nicholas, is ready for them. And I love the little exchange when they're putting them in the pig, scouring plug to clean out the pipeline. It's it's a piece of cake. But if they turn to Valve too early, he'll be borscht. And Koskov is like, pigs, cake, borscht. There has to be another way. <laughs> uh, again, the follow-up with that, too, is funny. Relax, Yorgi. Our engineers have spent months perfecting this. Well, how many times have you done it before? You're the first. You're the ah! first. <laughs> <laughs> Good little bit of uh, humor in the mix. I like it. And yeah, that was fine. Th- Despite the upcoming swerve regarding uh, Yorgi, it's like he plays such a wonderful piece of shit. Yeah. He's one of those top tier villains that you're like, can somebody shoot this fucker? Kind of, you know? 
you know, it doesn't really happen. I was kind of sad about that. <laughs> Ruzika, to distract her supervisor, you know how she's going to do that? She unzips her jumpsuit, flashes her cleavage, and rams his face between her boobs to motorboat her just long enough for the lights to stop blinking. And then she can go, what kind of girl do you think I am? <laughs> I thought that was brilliant. Uh, yeah, that, 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 that was a lot of fun. I love that so much. She's a character that, like, you could never bring her back, really, unless you were just trying to find a way to bring her back. But she's a great little, like, just one of those little allies that I love in this uh, franchise. And Koskov gets sent to Austria. He's met by Q, uh, who sends him on his way on a jet. Q's got a little moment there where he's climbing up the steps and he has to take a pill. This is kind of an in-joke, because John Glenn... <laughs> Uh, he showed him uh, Desmond Llewellyn the steps for this whole set and everything, and he was like, oh, "All right, so Desmond, when you get done climbing all that, um, whatever." And he's like, "What? Like I got to do all that?" And he's like, "Well, yeah. I mean, he's got to get up to the front there." They weren't, of course, planning on having him walk up all those steps, and he he popped one of his uh, angina pills, and he was like. All right. And they're like, Desmond, come on. We're not going to force you to force you to do that. We'll just shoot the shot of you being like a step like up on like a different part. You know, like it's fine. You don't have to climb up like, you know, 900 steps or whatever, you know. But so they were like, let's just put that in the movie kind of, you know. I like it. He's the old man kind of. I can't believe he's in another 12 years of films. Yeah, he's oh, I love him so much. When we're going to get to his last movie, that's so sad. Uh, it's gut wrenching. We get confirmation that Bond was right about the trunk in the car. Uh, they completely check that first when they're going to the border, and Bond says, "You know, cheer up, Saunders. The mission's a success, and uh, officially, it's still yours." Just kind of like being cheeky about it, and Saunders is just pissed about that. Uh, he says, "You know, your orders were to kill the sniper, and you you missed it like on purpose. So I'm just going to tell him about that." And Bond says, "The line that really sums up the way that Dalton was approaching this." Stuff my orders. I only kill professionals. That girl didn't know one end of a rifle from another. Go ahead, go ahead and tell M if you want. If he finds me, I'll thank him for it. Which is just there's Dalton's Bond kind of, and then he throws in you know the whole say the line kind of thing of whoever she uh, uh whatever she wants or whatever whoever she is. Uh, I must have scared the living daylights out of her. So it's like roll yeah, credits. he was super stoked to be like. I said the name of the film. Yeah. <laughs> I, I really didn't like that. No? I thought it was so, it, thought it was so unbelievably forced. Oh, uh, I love it. Who says that line? Who ever says that phrase? Scared the living daylights? Oh, yeah, I scared the living daylights out of her. It's just like... Oh, I've heard it way before. I know, but, I know, yeah. I know it's a phrase. It is a genuine phrase, but, no, but nobody past the age of not... Nobody past the years of 1920 has ever said that phrase in, like, it, without like doing it in jest or ironically. I'll be one of those people then. I, I've said the living daylights and just regular stuff. And you're forgetting something, Callum. Being so incredibly forced is right up the alley for James Bond. So, you know? <laughs> yeah, right. More well, ways than one. Yeah, I don't say that. But it's like, it's like one of the things I say, I must have scared the bejeebus out of them. You might as well say that. It's like, Maybe that was another foreign language title. Yeah. Bejeebus. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Jesus. <laughs> and let's go to Q Branch's bunker, which we haven't seen before. 
in a, at least in that way. I mean, we kind of saw a little bit of that with Fear Your Eyes Only and the whole uh, identigraph thing. But thankfully, we don't sit there for you know two hours with uh, not a banana kind of things. Bond and Q are going over some possible sniper options, including a woman that strangles people with her thighs. Keep that in mind. And the new Money Penny, played by Carolyn Bliss, uh, says that she's just Bond's type, which we will get to. There's also another assassin that assassin that impersonates children and uses explosive teddy bears like a goddamn Batman villain. <laughs> yeah. Imagine seeing that in one of these movies. Yeah, it'd be really weird. Uh, explosive teddies. Okay, so the photo of the person they show of who I'm assuming you're proclaiming already is on the top does not look like on the top. Not at all. She but... looks like a. She looks like a. Well, I don't want to say like she looks like a man, but she looks like she, she looks, looks like, like you like could strangle somebody with her eyes. Yeah, she looks like she's someone that could crush you with her bare hands, pretty much. So yeah, yeah. So it is something that like I don't know if that's just they were like, hey, let's go back to that idea. Or I mean, technically, they don't say the name of the person on there, so it could just be recasting of the same character, which is pretty interesting. Kind of the whole idea of the Rear Admiral uh, Graves, B and M, or maybe the same guy from Hey, I got a brother. Could have been the one from the man with the golden gun as well, you know, like just kind of one of those weird things in the series. Uh, before we leave, Q shows off one of his goodies, a boom box that shoots out a rocket, and he says <laughs> a gray line. You Some... know this was yeah, this is my favorite thing in the film when he goes, Something we're working on for the Americans called the ghetto blast. <laughs> <laughs> I would. I, I want this in real life. I want it in Streets of Rage video games. I want it everywhere. <laughs> How perfect is that? A ghetto blaster? Whoever thought of that deserves a pay raise. I think they actually made that a, a gun in a in a um in Saint Row. Really? Good. They should. I know. I know. There's definitely some sort of weapon the way you would basically just shoot rockets out of a. A boombox. <laughs> so That's it could have awesome. been that. Uh, Money Penny wants Bond to come by and check out her Barry Manilow collection, and she's fawning over him like crazy. What do you guys think about this new Money Penny? Because this is the first time that we're getting a new Money Penny. 15 films. I honestly think it's a rather uneventful debut for her. On the one hand, yes. On the other, top notch Money Penny. She looks great. She plays the part for an updated time. Definitely heartbreaking because Lois Maxwell was the character, but she, uh, she does it very well. Uh, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. She's as plain as everything else in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> she is the most plain Jane out of all the money pennies that we have. Yeah, again, okay, I don't want to be super harsh because she's like she's a pretty girl and yeah. she's doing she's and she did a like the job that she was supposed to do because at the end of the day, Money Penny's not there to steal the scenes that she's in. She's just there to be slightly flirtatious with Bond, carry on that relationship. It looks a lot more normal now that it's not two grandparents. <laughs> yeah. <or like, laughs> Imagine Lois other. Maxwell with uh with all, and it would have been like, all right, auntie, whatever, you know. <laughs> Yeah, I, I just thought it was um it was weird that she wasn't anywhere near M in, in any part of this movie. Yeah, and you know what? I don't know for sure if they really have any solid interactions in the next one. 
It's like she's not M secretary. She's like she's working with Q. Kind of, yeah. I guess it's more so just like, well, you know, this is where we can put money, Penny, kind of. Mm. But I like her. You know, she's just that. She happens to be my third or fourth favorite money, Penny. Then again, you know, at this time it was the second money penny, so it was like no matter what, you're number two at least. Yeah, and I think perfectly serviceable. Yeah. So my next section is labeled "Got Milk." <laughs> Bond heads off to this huge estate, very nice looking place, to meet up with him and the defense minister and some other folk. Another gadget we see is a rake that signals that Bond's carrying a gun, which is why is the rake just sticking up? Yeah, it's, it's kind of weird. Oh, actually, I wanted to bring up something about the. The previous part, if I can, can quickly, is because yeah. um, I, I watch these movies with subtitles on. Really? Because it's sometimes well, yeah, it's sometimes difficult to pronounce people's names and stuff like that. So I put the subtitles on just so it helps me with my notes. And when Bond leaves after, like she says about the Barry Manilow collection and stuff like that, um, there is a subtitle underneath it when Bond leaves of slaps buttocks. <laughs> yeah, he doesn't really like show that on they screen didn't show it, but you can hear the smack and i figured that's what he was doing huh. i was thinking i was thinking this is a bit late in the 80s for that sort of stuff to be going on <laughs> maybe but maybe i had a, a too um high an expectation of the 80s at this point you actually uh you saved me from having to backtrack too much more because there's another note that i had that i forgot that ghetto blaster shot was triggered off screen by prince charles that's cool <laughs> He's the one that pressed the button for that little thing to go off because he and uh, Diana were visiting the set and there's like footage and like pictures and stuff of um, Diana smashing a bottle of like those breakaway glass kind of things on him. I hope none of the car crashes in this movie gave him him any Uh, idea. (laughs) Based off of the name of some of the titles, I don't know. Um, so yeah, we got the rake thing going on, and we get to see our henchman, Necros, who kills the milkman with his headphones while listening to what's going to be one of our other recurring themes in this movie, the track, Where Has Everybody Gone? The, Where has everybody gone? I love this song as well. I thought it was pretty good. Yeah, I wouldn't have t- I wouldn't have known it was there if you hadn't have just told me what it was. Really? Uh, where's my support now? <laughs> I, I, like I, said, I don't listen to the music. It doesn't, yeah. it doesn't phase me unless it's something that's really, really good or just like really awful that it's so hard that you can't miss it. It's but just, it kept coming back. Like this one was hard not to pick up on for me. I just wasn't paying much attention to that side of it. I was like, I'm just too busy listening to the dialogue that I don't really pay any attention to any of the music. Callum's like, I don't know about the uh, the song that recurs, but I've got slaps bucks. <laughs> well, it doesn't, it doesn't say in the subtitles, oh, this uh, this song starts playing. The Necros theme plays. Yeah, yeah the Necros theme plays. Uh, if, you slap, if you slap the milkman's buttocks when he killed him, he would have, would have put that out there. He might have. This is a character that does a lot of funny things in those series. So. <laughs> Uh, Koskov's, uh, their food's terrible. He says, <laughs> just a dig at, you know, British, uh, uh, food. And Bonds brought a picnic basket, not with, you know, the typical Yogi Bear type stuff, but it's got caviar, which, <laughs> again, Koskov's a fucking pain in the ass. He's like, God, this is peasant food, but with the right champagne, it's okay. Bollinger RD. Okay. And M's like, what the fuck? Bond just says, "Oh, the list that was had that uh, it was questionable, so I took the liberty to get something else." So we got Snooty Bond back 
about, you know, that's garbage. I'm going to just charge a lot more and get a really fancy <laughs> thing of champagne instead. Superb, Mr. Bond, superb. Totally, like, you're not supposed to fully hate Koskov at this point, but it's like, God, I want to punch that dude in the face, you know? Knowing what we know now, it's like, oh, fuck him. Yeah. yeah, he's incredibly unlikable. Yeah, it's so good. Uh, Koskov tells him the story about General Gogol's replacements. This is where they rework the script. It's General Pushkin, who's totally against detente, and he has a list of agents he wants dead. It's a smeared spionum, death to spies. And that's what was on the tag when 004 was killed. Uh, remember the parrot, Max, from For Your Eyes Only? He's back in the kitchen. <laughs> that's the same parrot. Oh, good for him. He doesn't, uh, he's not very helpful in this one. No, he's not, uh, passing off the end. Now he's not gross. <laughs> kind of a thing. <laughs> Should have been saying, where has everybody gone? Then people would have gotten it. <laughs> He gets to watch Necros kill some people. And I actually really, really like this bit where this random unnamed security agent puts up a damn good fight against Necros. He's not a total loser just to make Necros and Bond in comparison look better. The guy fights. I agree. I thought that that was a really welcome part of the movie because like, we see a lot where it's just Oh, they're all helpless, and Bond saves the day. Mm-hmm. Like, top agents, and they're like, no, they can be taken out like nothing. This is one of the best fight scenes in the entire franchise, so far. It's I so agree. good. You got a cast iron skill to the face, you got people burning, mm-hmm. throwing boiling water, an electric turkey knife. Yeah, I feel more bad for this random security guard that we never even know what his name is dying than half of the allies that Bond has had forever. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, if I would rank him on the allies list, I'd put him like uh, considerably higher than a lot of other people probably would because it's just like, no, that dude's good. And technically speaking, he doesn't necessarily die. I mean, you can get hit in the head and just get, you know, a concussion well, the and knock down. pretty much blows up. So depending on that, yeah. yeah, depending on what happens. <laughs> yeah, it's off screen. Whenever something's off screen, unless there's a body, you know. But talk about explosions. Milk bottle grenades. Just whipping them around. Fucking awesome. Awesome. I'm going to count that as a gadget. It was too much. It's too much. The exploding milk bottles. That's so... I don't... It was... That was where it got to... Okay. It felt like, okay, we're going to dip into more a little bit here. Going to throw an exploding milk bottle. And maybe I should have liked that, but I just felt like, okay, you're trying to go serious now, and then you do this. Now it's really jarring. (laughs) <laughs> Living Daylights is very much let's give him a little bit of more and a little bit of Connery and see what sticks. Mm. Definitely. And it's actually like it feels like it's half a book. Like this could be one of the books, you know, the way that it's written, the way that there's like multiple plot elements and everything. But then of course you throw in exploding milk bottles because people are like, hey, isn't this the franchise where the guy's got a crocodile submarine? <laughs> yeah. Because yeah, it, it just I think I was speaking to you earlier about this, and like before we started recording, it was just he feels like he doesn't know. Like even though you said like he wants to be a bit more like more serious and be a pissed off type Bond, he also feels like he's trying to drag every other iteration of Bond through with him at the same time. Best of hits kind of thing. But then he's also trying to be every other Bond at the same time. Yeah, and that's where I kind of lost it a little bit to me. Next film, he's like, I'm just going to be the the ruthless killer type. 
kind of a thing. Yeah, I'm kind of looking forward to the next one more because you've said that side of it. I like that they write this off as a gas leak, too. Everybody leaves thinking that's just a gas leak instead of that there's somebody invaded and it's been killing people and everything. So Necros does a good job extracting Koskov. The plan works pretty much flawlessly. And only, I think they say something like two are dead. So, Which I mean, probably... maybe the maybe the one guy, maybe not. Well, one guy's definitely dead is the, um, the, the chef that he choked out. And there's the, uh, there, at least one person gets like right next to one of the exploding bottles. <laughs> so mm. that dude's probably gone. Maybe the super cool, uh, kitchen fight dude is one of the guys that survives and we just get some, you know, 30 years later, we get some kind of call back to it and Hey, you know, <laughs> I got that uh, burnt scar on my face kind of thing, you know, mm. we get back to M's office, the stuffy one that we've seen before. And bond is suspicious of the whole killing spies thing. He's suspicious of Koskov and M threatens again to call 008 back from Hong Kong because 008's the guy that we know now he follows orders, not instincts. I really want to see 008 at some co- at some point being this guy that like he's just as good as Bond, but he's the by the numbers dude. And Bond is kind of looking at him as like, dude, go off the rails a little bit. And he's just kind of like, yeah, I got to fill out my paperwork, <laughs> you know? See, but the way you just described it makes it sound like Bond would be played by Jack Black. <laughs> just like shouting in the middle yeah, of a Bond go film. Off the rails. <laughs> We could get like he could do that, and then we could get super serious Adam Sandler as Double O Eight. God, that would be a terrible movie. You know, we could have lived in the world where Jack Black was Green Lantern. Maybe we're not on the worst timeline. Yeah. We get another Q branch scene, double the amount of Q, and he gets his main gadget of the film—a magnetic key ring finder that, when you whistle the first part of Rule Britannia, it releases some stun gas. And Bond says, what do I do to blow up the room? Whistle, God save the queen. <laughs> I like that line a lot. It does have an explosive, and it's personalized to Bond. A wolf whistle, or like you might better know it as a cat call. Uh, and Bond, I love that he teases that he's going to blow up Q, because he puts the little magnet on there, and he goes, you mean... And he's like, oh, stop, stop, you know. <laughs> Imagine he just goes, you mean... Bang! He just fucking... Ah, oh, man, there goes Q, you know. Uh, it also has lockpicks, which come in pretty handy. This is our main, main gadget, because we basically just get a bunch of other, like, binoculars and stuff. And there was a time frame where I hated this gadget, because we can get exploiting pens, we can get a whole bunch of other stuff down the line. I've grown to like this more and more. It was sensible, and they use it a lot, and... Again, kind of like what Callum's been saying about this film, it's a little on the bland side, but yep. it does do the trick. Yeah, it's, it's it's sensible, it's effective, it does its job in the moments in the movie when it needs to do its job. It just is completely devoid of any real yeah, creativity or character. It's just a, it's just a black key ring. And it's... I love the fact that it's just like, uh, it's a lockpick that opens 90% of the world's locks. I'm just wondering... What is it about the 10% that it can't do? <laughs> yeah. We don't get to see it, at least. There's no, like, damn it, there's 10% <laughs> kind of things. Uh, there's also a trick sofa one of the techs falls into just for the sake of a gag. There's really no point for it other than just to be like, huh, look at that. Yeah, That's then, our and spot. Then Q just sits on him. Yeah. So <laughs> Q being a dick about that, too. Uh, Money Penny's found the cello girl, Kara Malovi. 
And Bond says, I'm just taking the Aston Martin out for a quick spin, Q, which Q says, uh, be careful, it's just got a new coat of paint. Or a new paint of coat, if you are Chris Pritchard. Let me tell you, I ain't coming back. <laughs> uh, why didn't you learn the violin? It's the next section we got going on here. Bond scopes out Kara. One of Pushkin's goons grabs her off the bus. She leaves her cello, so Bond grabs it, checks it out. Voila, there's a sniper rifle inside the case. And the rounds are blanks. And this is happening in a kind of way that sort of references that scene in On Her Majesty's Secret Service where that guy's uh, going through and he's um, uh, like is street sweep, not street sweeping, uh, he's sweeping the rugs and the floors all over the place here. Sweeping the floors is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> and you know how he was like whistling Goldfinger or whatever. We just get a little kind of a callback to this in a little bit, but it's not blatantly obvious or anything. Um, Kara's apartment's trashed he returns the cello case to her after dropping the gun in the river and he says that he's a friend of Yorgi and my note for this thing is she's so damn cute how happy she is and she's like she's Koskov's girlfriend and he's just, she's just like oh he's okay like oh this is so good and I'm like oh I love Kara <laughs> she's let's talk about she's her she's very wholesome she's very wholesome and probably up to this point, the one Bond girl that actually has a relationship developed for an entire film with James Bond. And I really ended up liking the way that she's played. Yeah, I mean, she she does get a lot of more character development than a lot of the other ones. I feel like, we'll talk about it later on in the movie, but her happiness and devotion towards Georgie is, isn't exactly um, akin to faithfulness. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, we'll, we'll, get, we'll get to that. And that kind of dropped her down a little bit in my eyes. Just like, but yeah, she's very, yeah. As Rob says, I think wholesome is probably the best way of describing it because, and I know you're going to disagree, Tony. She is very plain. I think just... she is what, I mean, if I'm talking about the pure hotness scale, she's not my number one. But she's my number two for right now. She's perfect girl next door. She's plain, mm-hmm. but in in the best way for this character, because she really does play somebody who just kind of gets mixed up in all this. And she's a sweetheart. I yeah, like, like somebody like Fiona. She's just like a sexy bombshell and plenty of tool. You know, she's got this <laughs> giant chest and it's a gimmick and all that. And. You know, there's quote unquote hotter Bond girls because I've said this probably a million times in different podcasts, but to me, attractiveness has a four prong kind of approach. There's cute, sexy, beautiful, and hot. Where hot and sexy are kind of like the uh, the more like lustful things, and cute and beautiful are the more wholesome ones. And cute and sexy are like the personality traits and. Uh, hot and beautiful or more like just looking at somebody or whatever. Kara is not the hottest Bond girl and she's not the sexiest Bond girl, but she's so cute and so pretty, I think. She's very cute. Yeah. Let's say she's, she's a good fit for this movie. Yeah. And it's, again, I'm not going to say like just because she's like plain or anything along those lines. It's just a bit, it's just she's very, this this movie, as Rob has alluded to earlier, Bond doesn't really get his dick wet too much in this. <laughs> <laughs> That's so, a good way of worrying it. 
So I think it's, like, the, it's like the girl that he was like, oh, this is the girl that you take out for a, a date and spend time with rather than, okay, let's just get down to business. We know we're both here. Right. And, it, you know, hindsight, this might be the one positive to come out of the AIDS crisis. Bond has to, like, not focus on just pure sex. Yeah, it's not like he's just banging Polly Vanova to do something for that night kind of a thing. <laughs> Although, you know, I mean, he uh, bets more people here and there. And then we get to Boston. Boston's fucking people for, like, no reason, kind of. But um, we get some uh, some spy game stuff here. Bond and Kara get away with the whole photo, uh, not photo booth, um, phone booth thing. And I like that little bit, too, just because it's something that I could see spies doing. She... Yeah. Insists on getting her cello though, and Bond is pissed, ramming it into the backseat. Why didn't you learn the violin? <laughs> Again, that is a very good line. <laughs> um, so she's so cute, and uh, they go through this whole thing with uh, a car chase. We got our, our car chase in this movie on the police scanner. They're looking for a man and a woman and a cello. Uh, this car's got all sorts of tricks. Whereas Bond says a few optional extras that were installed that she is just sort of like, huh, what's all this for? She's kind of a little bit of like, you know, oh, you poor soul. Like you're, you're so uh, gullible when it comes to this a little bit. Uh, I mean, she's not played like a complete idiot or anything. Not like some other people that they've had in the past where it's just like, okay, Stacy can't hear that there's a fucking blimp behind her. Um you got a laser. She's not exactly sharp, is she? No, she's, you know, she's very gullible in some ways. <laughs> You got a laser that cuts the bottom of the car next to them, and Bond just goes, "Oh, it's salt corrosion." <laughs> you know? I that was very funny. But then it gets to like, oh, we can't play this off. He's shooting fucking missiles, <laughs> and the screens pop it up on the dash and whatever. And there's bulletproof glass. And he goes, "Oh, it's amazing this modern safety glass." <laughs> and they ram a car into a cabin. It drives into a frozen lake. There's this pretty neat little thing to spice it up. There's a exposed tire rim that uses they use to cut the hole in the ice, and Bond switches to outrigger mode. They've got skis to the car and spikes to the tires. There's a goddamn rocket motor like the Batmobile just to jump a ramp. It's a little over the top in some ways, I'll admit, but I enjoy it a whole lot. No, this is totally what he should have by this point. It's too wacky for me. I just feel I just feel like for the time that this movie is trying to say it's too wacky. Yeah. It's a step more into the Roger Moore side of things. Yeah. Yeah. This would be totally a home in a Roger Moore movie and I'd enjoy it. And it's not like I don't enjoy seeing these things pop up from now and again, but it just feels like he's he's in constant battle of like, okay, I really want to be this one, but they're giving me this shit to do as well. So I guess I have to go along with it mm. and try and make it seem somewhat real. And yeah, it's just, like, I have no idea why she doesn't understand it. I mean, to be fair, you can make the argument of, like, oh, she's spent her entire life in Eastern Europe, so it means that maybe she just assumes that Western people, all cars are like this. <laughs> <laughs> or, I mean, she doesn't know 100% what Yorgi is up to, but she knows that he's involved in something. So, I mean, if if your boyfriend says, hey, can you pretend to assassinate me? You know he's involved in some stuff, and he's a... A general, so she could just be like, "Oh, this is you know, he's what one of Yorgi's friends. He's got this shit, you know." Mm. I've been, and then they carry on with a bit. Like, first of all, it's should be a crime against nature that they blew up an Aston Martin. 
<laughs> the self-destruct button, yeah. Car's toast. Yeah, that that is that is like horrifying. I'm sort of like I'm not like a huge car enthusiast, but I know what I like, and Aston Martins are some of the most beautiful cars that've ever been made. And just to see that get just blown up in the snow is just <laughs> it's a bit painful to watch. And then they do this is the most one of, if not the most more thing of the entire movie, is them sledding along <laughs> on the cello case. Glad I insisted you brought that cello. <laughs> yeah. And Bond's got to throw holding, that in there. Yeah. With Bond holding the cello and it shoots the cello and so he looks at Cara and says, oh, sorry about that. And it's just, and then they flash the passport and he <laughs> throws the cello up and over the barricade and catches it on the other side before escaping into Austria. Yeah. We've got I nothing think, to declare. Just a cello. I think this was the point where I said, I think I'm going to say ding dong cello. <laughs> this is becoming quite the plot of this movie and funny enough about that little spot with the tossing the cello and doing the checkpoint thing the stunt people couldn't get it right and dalton's like i'll try it and he got it right in the first shot (laughs) it took less times to do that than it did to do the friggin magnet pull it took less times to do that than it did this walk on alligators (laughs) the cello it's bonds down yeah i think this is less complicated than walking across alligators i know but i mean like if they couldn't get it done with the stunt people and then mm. the guy who's playing bond is just like i'll just knock it out real quick kind of a thing that's pretty impressive i think that's cool uh general pushkin we get to meet him now uh more so than just for a quick shot he meets up with brad whitaker who we meet and he's hiding around one of his uh as one of his wax sculptures that all look like him but they're all warlords like Hitler and Genghis Khan and everything. Uh, Pushkin calls them all butchers. Whitaker's like, oh, they're surgeons. They cut away society's dead flesh. Whitaker's an arms dealer who shows off some of his goods. And Pushkin says the $50 million deal is off. But he points out that Whitaker's not actually somebody who served in the military. He was expelled from West Point for cheating and he just became an arms dealer and worked with criminals instead. And he's just obsessed with the military and the dude's not having a military career, which I think is, it's interesting. Although I will say Whitaker is one of my least favorite Bond villains. I think he's one of the most realistic. I can see this happening. He's realistic he for the, sure. Yeah. He was the best part of the whole movie. Really? Wow. That's a take he, I haven't heard before. He is so... I, it's one of the best parts of the movie and also the worst because they don't use him enough. He is... You talk about unlikable with... But like, <laughs> this guy is a fucking mental case. And I <laughs> want to see this guy more. Don't do it so... Because, like... You will. I just listen to him like, I want to see you die in the most elaborate and ridiculous way possible. I want Bond to punch your face through the mat, through the ground. <laughs> like, that's what I want to see. And it was so disappointing that he was only in, like, five scenes in this entire movie. And just, like... Use this guy. This guy's crazy. Do it. He is. I. I couldn't. Like. I wanted him to be a bigger part because if he had been like the bigger part and he had been like the big bad villain of this entire movie, because really it's even though uh, Koskov doesn't die, he's kind of like the one that we see throughout the movie. If it was more based around Whitaker, then I would say yeah, best Bond villain of all time. Hmm. Wow, that's a take I have never heard before. That's very interesting. He's a psychopath. It's amazing. It's just like, yeah, he's somebody that is just in from the moment you see him and you just push him, <laughs> walks in, and you see all the fu- fucking. He idolizes Hitler. 
Yeah, like, idolizing Hitler and Genghis Khan and Stalin and all these other people and calling them surgeons to cut away the dead flesh of society. From that moment, I just say, I want you to blow up <laughs> multiple times over. I want you to fall out of plane while blowing up. Just everything <laughs> possible. He was so good. He was, and the guy that played him is so into that character. You believe everything he says. So we don't see Whitaker in the future, but we do see Joe Don Baker. He pops up in two more Bond films. As a completely different character. Obviously. Yeah. I mean, well, I yeah. mean, we've had people die. Like, we've had oh, three different 002s, you know, <laughs> that kind of thing. I mean, yeah, I, pr- I appreciate that. So, I mean, he is one of the best parts of Goldeneye. And he, he's he's not really in Tomorrow Never Dies, but uh, he is. So, they liked him so much that they were like hey, bring this guy back even if it doesn't make any sense to just you know kind of like the thing with um henderson and blofeld where it's just sort of like ah fuck it we like him you know <laughs> and pushkin is played by john Rhys davies who you might recognize as uh sala in indiana jones or gimli from lord of the rings hmm it, it it is amazing to think about him being a normal sized human being. Because <laughs> if you have only watched Lord of the Rings and you've mm-hmm. only seen him play Gimli, just to see him, like obviously younger and an actual human sized man, is just if not a bit big. Of a trip, really. He's he's he's, he's kind of like uh he's built you know kind of so it's like yeah. little tiny Gimli. What? <laughs> he's great. I love him. Yeah, he yeah he was a lot of fun as well. I think he was a um, he was a good because you can't really certainly say he's an ally. I, guess I have done as an ally, but, but well, I guess he kind of is because he does work something out with Bond. But at the end of the day, Bond is Bond's mission is to kill this guy. Yeah. So, so Bond and Kara go on this uh, romantic carriage ride, all while she's talking about you know how. Yorgi got her, her cello. It's a Stradivarius named a Lady Rose. She wants to play at Carnegie Hall, et cetera, et cetera. It's weird to me. Like, again, this isn't going to be something I'm going to like crap on the film for, but it is weird to me that like, hey, I'm a friend of your boyfriend. Let's go on a romantic carriage ride <laughs> and kind of thing. You know, I wouldn't want anybody taking my fiance and being like, oh, it's cool. Like, we'll just hang out for a little bit and we'll just do these like completely romantic based things. I'd be like, yeah, no, that's not happening. <laughs> you know? Oh, sorry about that, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> you too. You don't find good people in this business. <laughs> no, yeah, I just thought it a little bit, it's a little bit jarring because it's just a case of, okay, so I, I can understand her being attracted to Bond because mm-hmm. then again, who, what woman with a pulse isn't at this point really in these yeah. franchises? But it's just the case that she's, she said that she's clearly in love with Georgie and Georgie's given her all this great stuff. And she has, at this point, she has no reason to not look to not be in love with Georgie because she hasn't been told anything or she hasn't been given any sort of reason not to. And yet she's like, okay, I'm in a few scenes. I'm going to be making out a bond. Like mm-hmm. I'm completely single. And it's just a bit like it. Let's say for arguments sake that uh, Koskov is good throughout this entire thing. And Bond's actually there to assassinate the evil Pushkin. Just like, okay. So she just cheated on her perfectly yeah. fine boyfriend for no reason other than but it's Bond. Her boyfriend who got her a Stradivarius. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The Bond has the magic penis. Yeah. And that's that's the fiddle that she really wants. Uh, <laughs> yeah, why couldn't you learn to play the skin flute? <laughs> At the end of the day, fellas, she is 
A woman. A woman. Uh, the sniper was a woman. <laughs> they go to a hotel and the clerk <laughs> the clerk looks over at Carr and he's like, you want your usual suite? <laughs> and Bond's like, uh, not this time. One with a second bedroom. So we get another little bit here with, um, well, should I have some vodka martini sent up? And he goes, shaken, not stirred. Oh, of course. You know, I like how Bond uh, delivers that or how Dalton delivers that line of it's got a reason why he says shaken, not stirred instead of most of the time when he says that you're kind of like, well, you could say shaken and just not have to say not stirred, but it could be like, you can kind of write it off as, remember, you fucking stirred it that last time or something, you know? Uh, Bond offers to use Yorgi's money to pay for this blue gown that Kara sees, you know, well, who's going to pay for it? Yorgi, of course, this kind of thing. And meanwhile, yeah. Koskov smooching it up with uh, some girls at a pool and Necros is there and barely a Speedo. <laughs> Uh, that the guy was a model, and they were like, "Show it off, why not?" You know. And uh, so, if anybody's like doing the eye candy thing for for the women on the side of things, there you go, Necros. <laughs> Whitaker's eating some lobster, and that looks so good. Every time I watch that scene and I see him crack that claw, I'm like, "Fuck, I want lobster." <laughs> it does look really good. You've had lobster, uh, like. <laughs> It does make them look like where it's the two things that you could do when you're eating in a movie that can make people go, I hate this guy are to crack lobsters and just kind of be like, oh, you know, I just eat lobsters kind of a thing. And to eat an apple. If you do either of those, people are going to be like, this dick, you know, <laughs> but I want lobster so bad after watching that every single time because it's just it looks like it's just this huge like, oh, delicious. I and it has that effect in real life. Like, you eat some lobster, and you're just like, yeah, I'm living the highlight, yeah. you know? Like, I'm a fancy piece of shit. Yeah, but next time I eat lobster, I'm going to be like, and kill him! <laughs> kind of thing. If he's not dead by that time, then Necros, you go kill him. Where's everybody going? Bond fell Saunders in on how he's trying to get some leads from Carr and Koskov's defections with fake and everything, and Saunders trusts Bond now. Like, okay, well, Bond understood what to do with the uh, trunk of the car, and Bond's going with this, so Saunders is like, Bond's cool. I like Bond now. And we get some amusement park stuff. Bond and Carr are on the bumper cars and all, which, you know, they'll bump later. And I really like the part with the shooting game. He clearly hits something dead on in the car, and he just goes, no more. <laughs> stop, stop, you're killing me here. You're not supposed to shoot as well as what you can do, you know. Uh, we get another jump scare with this goblin thing. I don't know what's scarier, that or the monkey from the beginning. Yeah, a monkey. Uh, yeah, the monkey one's more memorable to me. A monkey. Bun sets up uh, this Ferris wheel to stop at the top, and he tells her a line which I think is admittedly creepy enough in the wrong context without the line ahead of it. He says, don't think, just let it happen. Mm-hmm. Now, it's not as bad because of the line before it. She says, they've only been together for a couple of days, two days, I think is what she says. But all she can think about is being with Bond instead. So, and even though we don't see it really 100%, and it's kind of like that, like, uh, okay, they're falling in love on the side kind of a thing. Well, she is. Bond's not really like falling in love. He's still just kind of pumping for information. But she 
with the let's buy this fancy gown and let's go to Vienna and let's go on this fancy carriage ride and we're doing this sort of thing and I'm shooting the thing and getting you this prize, whatever. Bond's kind of doing a best hits of dates. And she is falling for it. In two days, she's like, I, I want to leave my guy and I want to be with you and that's not right. And Bond's just like, but, you know, dick. so she yeah there you go she's uh she's kissing bond and like we were saying it's kind of like in in one light you look at it and you go okay well i can see the justification and in another light you're like oh that cheating bitch (laughs) kind of yeah i mean i mean you do get the impression that Coscoff's not exactly a great boyfriend. Both, yeah. But obviously, we've seen the scene of him making out with girls around the pool. But obviously, she's Crucial. not aware of that. But but like Bond is actually treating her well on a date and actually like paying attention to her and get taking her to the opera, buying the dress. Admittedly, with Georgie's credit card. Yeah. But that's <laughs> that's one that's one other aspect of it. But yeah, so she's clearly neglected and she kind of feels like oh she she loves Georgie but Georgie doesn't treat her this way. There's a big difference between let's go to a a fun amusement park and let's just kind of giggle and laugh together and have this sort of vibe. And, hey, can you uh, take a little bit break on your opera and try to shoot me? (laughs) So I'll I'll give Kara a pass on that one, you know. Uh, Saunders is uh, waiting in the cafe. Necros is lurking again, playing the song. I love I love that. Just. You know, very, like, kind of low in some parts. And, uh... Oh, I forgot to mention the love theme, too. There's, so there's three themes in this movie. The Living Daylights, that plays throughout the movie. Necros' theme, where does everybody go on the place throughout the movie? And the love theme, if there was a man, that plays throughout the movie. For any of the scenes where cars, like, falling in love and whatever. It's the do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do kind of song. I'm not only a fan of the song itself, but I'm a major, major supporter of Bond films having multiple songs, in particular having a love theme, because I feel like that makes that more memorable. Like, this is Kara's song. The theme never pops up in another movie, and you can't do it for everybody. I mean, you can't make a theme for Pussy Galore, you know? But, you know, this is like Kara's love theme, and in the next movie, we're going to get a love theme. And kind of in the next movie a little bit, Eventually, we get David Arnold, and David Arnold does a different thing that I like just as much, where he takes this one song and he makes it the James Bond love theme, and it's it carries over throughout multiple films. He kind of has like five themes that are in his score. There's like this do 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 kind of song for like action sequences and stuff. But I really really like the the love theme too. It's it's not going to be super duper high on my list, but if there was a man, good song. And I don't think I'll bring it up anymore. Anybody else have any other kind of thoughts on uh, that song? Um, the weakest of the songs to me, just yeah, just because I'm not that kind of guy, I guess. But it's a fine song. Did it register at all to you, Kel? No. <laughs> okay, I didn't think so. So right, Saunders reveals uh, it was Whitaker who bought the cello, and then Saunders is killed. R.I.P. I like Saunders. So his death is kind of like, oh, man. He's a solid character. He's not the best ally of all time, but I like him. No, I, I did like this part of it because Bond 
they'd obviously had their tension beforehand, but Bond he'd actually gone out and got this information for Bond, and Bond was helped. Like they they seemed to reach an accord after their initial friction with each other, and Bond said, "Okay, thanks for helping me out." And so Saunders leaves, and then they do that great shot of the glass just slamming off camera and just shattering, and then. Again, obviously, I mentioned that how good Whitaker, but in terms of like Bond in this movie and just Timothy Dalton, I think this is the best part for me of the whole movie. The which balloon is, yeah, him just getting over and then he sees the balloon and he just pops it and you just see the visceral anger in his face. Like it's now, it's not just a mission now. This is personal because, like, it's not like they were best friends or anything like that. But he helped him out and he just killed another agent to try and throw people off the scent. Yeah, this yeah. is now at least the fifth agent that's died because of this. Yeah. And, and it's just after they became, like, kind of buds, too. Yeah. Yeah, and he goes absolutely... Well, he seems to be just absolutely livid inside. Because he goes chasing <laughs> a couple of balloons that he sees just in the distance. And it's actually just a kid yeah. pretty much holding a balloon. And he's just putting a gun at them just for that away. <laughs> yeah, the monster's like, ah! <laughs> no! Smear spewing them on the balloon too, just to rub it in a little bit more. Oh yeah, and then we get the part where essentially all the wooing and getting information of car is done. And he basically says like, "Oh, can't we stay in Austria for a little bit longer?" He says, "No, we're leaving to go see Georgie now in Tangier." Uh, good uh, delivery too. When she's like, "Have you?" and he's like, "Heard from Yorgi?" Yeah, I got the message. Just kind of, you know, like I like that. I still don't. I've seen this movie about a million times. I don't quite get how Saunders is killed. It's something's not clicking in my brain. Does the door slam on him? Cause there's like an explosion, but it doesn't seem like it blows up in a way that would kill Saunders by the explosion necessarily. So the only thing that I could kind of, I, don't, I can't obviously know for certain because it's completely off camera, but the, what my perspective was is Necros has rigged the electric door to go really fast. That's what I thought. Up. And so he blows it up and the door just slams him just as he's like stepping within the threshold and the bar just goes straight essentially down the middle. I don't think he obviously doesn't get cut in half or anything like that, but it just slams him with such force that it just instantly, yeah, instantly kills him. That's the only way I could really see that. Yeah, it's just I mean, one of those, it's shot weird to where I've always been like, what exactly happens there? Because I think they're trying to get across the perspective that it was a really grisly death because they don't show it on camera. Yeah. So maybe they did want to get across the perspective that he's essentially split in half by it, or he's pretty much like, essentially he's been hit so bad and bludgeoned so bad that, that you just can't, you can't even pound to him at any point. <laughs> by the time we get to the next film, they're like, yep, yeah, just show it. and i love the next scene too oh man this is one of my favorite parts of the whole movie pushkin goes to meet up with his girl pretty girl by the way in a hotel room he's got his flowers his dinky little flowers and some uh you know for gifts and everything and bond's waiting for him with his gun complete with a silencer and bond i mean dalton looks like he's about to pull the trigger at any moment which works so well we got a line here. I take this as a social call, 007. Uh, and he says, correct. You should have brought lilies. <laughs> Fun little thing here. Uh, Pushkin activates a little alarm on his watch and Bond. The way to deal with that with the guard coming in, he strips Pushkin's girl naked. 
as a distraction as distraction which if you're taking notes and you want to add another point to the counter of nudity in a bond film this is the most obvious one her whole left breast is showing because they're trying to be a little bit edgier they're trying to push the boundaries a little bit it's the 80s and they're just kind of like ah, just show the boob uh it's uncomfortable it's a it's a scene that's like you i don't want to say like you, you hate bond in this scene but Instead of it being like, oh, good, he's going to kill the bad guy, because we don't know 100% at this point that Pushkin's up and up. But it's kind of like, oh, Bond's Bond's not likable in this in a lot of ways, just because of the way he just you know, rips her clothes off. And then, he, you know, go, go into the bathroom, I'm going to go shoot your uh, husband or whatever. Yeah, it's it, 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 as you say, it's uncomfortable. It's not. Again, it, it would be a bad, I'd say a bad scene. It would be an uncomfortable scene pretty much in any Bond iteration. It's just, you'd assume that even more Connery would have done something a bit more, I don't say charming about it, because there's hardly anything you really say about charming, but rip a woman's clothes off and essentially hang her out to dry. Um, Moore definitely but, wouldn't have done that. He would have been like, I'm not doing that scene. I'll have her, I'll convince her to stand there or something, you know? Like, Yeah, it just feels like, yeah, you can get the idea that bond, this Bond is a survivalist and he'll just do whatever it takes to get himself out of situations. But then again, that doesn't make him likable. He's not a hero in this scene. Mm-hmm. He's he's just, he knows that if he doesn't do something, he's going to he's gonna raise, obviously raise a lot of suspicion. He might end up being in a fight that he doesn't necessarily want to be in. So he decides, okay, girl, girl's here. How can I use her to essentially subvert subvert their attention and it's yeah it's not you you do go around that thinking wow that was a real dick move and not in that not in that the fun right when he's being a dick towards the villain stuff like that at the end of the day we know we don't know where pushkin stands but we know that this girl hasn't done anything throughout the entire thing and <laughs> she's just like even if he's not on the up and up this girl probably doesn't know that so this is one of the most unlikable scenes in the series as far as like pushing that boundary for bond if i still i love the scene because it's like wow yo you know what we don't see that side of bond as much it's usually like i'm gonna laugh around and i'm gonna joke this and oh this person died but i'm cool in the next scene and this is bond being like this guy's not a good guy like we lose track of that every once in a while bond is a hero but bond is an asshole and bond is a really troubled terrible person in a lot of ways love the character so much because he's so yeah it's kind of like what we talk about with with batman it's like batman's one of the best heroes ever and probably nobody should be around him (laughs) because he's just horrible you know and i love the music too the rendition of the main theme when bond's about to assassinate pushkin the just like this tension kind of thing I love the line, you're a professional, you don't kill without reason. I love the bit where he says, uh, Pushkin asks if he trusts him or Koskov, and Bond says, if I trusted Koskov, we wouldn't be talking. Uh, as long as you're alive, we'll never know what he's up to. And he just says, well, then I must die. It's a hell of a hook. Like, this dude volunteering to get a shot in the head here or something? Like, well, Obviously he's not, but it's like, where are they going with this? And this you know? 
from the context of the other Bond movies, I had a pretty good idea where it was going. Yeah. So, so I can't say it was like it was just. I assume for people that are less familiar or this was their first Bond movie, they would be a bit more. Okay, I wonder where that one's going. But I kind of like read that and was went, okay, they're gonna fake his death. That's basically. Yeah. It just immediately popped to my mind. It was imagine it if it would have been. Uh, well, then I must die. And Bond goes, "Yep." <laughs> Maybe they were hoping, with as much as they've shown, that people are thinking, oh man, this is the new Bond. He might just fucking kill him right there. The new Bond, better than ever. Living on the edge, shooting people. <laughs> In space. Tripping women. Yeah. I will. <laughs> Using people's credit cards. What an ass. Yeah. So what, what's... Uh, well, obviously that scene comes across more scummy, but I still think the scene from Live and Let Die, where he basically tricks... <laughs> the girl in the sleeping with him is more scummy. I still think that's probably the absolute worst is the pussy galore uh, scene oh, yeah. in the um, in the barn because <laughs> that's there's no context for that that you can kind of go well, but maybe well, like no, he's he's being a pick <laughs> kind of. <laughs> but our next scene is what we're talking about. Uh, Pushkin is giving a speech. Necros is about to kill him, but Bond shoots him instead. And it cues up a chase sequence on the rooftops of Tangier. This is where we get a little bit more of the Roger Moore stuff. Bond pulls down an antenna. It smacks into a guy. He's disrupting the local people and, you know, messing around with their laundry. It could have been worse, though, because they filmed the majority of a scene where he was going to grab a carpet and ride down on these wires to make it look like he was a flying magic carpet bit. And the people would have been like, oh, my God, a real flying magic carpet. Thankfully, they understood this looks dumb as shit. And you can see it on the deleted scenes. It's bad. It's real bad. It sounds like it. Because it goes super slow, too. They couldn't even get it to go fast enough to make it seem like it was exhilarating. So it's basically a a, a Timothy Dalton that doesn't want to do this thinking that it's too silly trying to play a little bit of a Roger Moore thing of like, okay, well we'll just have some fun here, but you can tell that he's uncomfortable on a shitty looking carpet on these wires going super slow. <laughs> it's terrible. So thankfully they, they cut that out, but I have a question for you guys. Where's feckish. <laughs> I haven't thought about it. Uh, same actors playing one of the cops. Oh, just a little bit of trivia, you know, (laughs) Really? it's like, yeah, let's bring Feckish in here. You know, he's like the police chief or something. And we see that Pushkin's faking it. He's not actually dead. Ha ha ha. There's squibs and a blood packet and everything. Now his wife or girlfriend or whoever it is, we never go fully get it. She had no idea. (laughs) So she's horrified at this. (laughs) And he's just like, sorry about that. You know, I had to get like your genuine reaction and whatever. And he says, this is the first time I've ever been grateful that James Bond's a good shot, which I think is fun. But she, I like her, her look here of just like through the ringer real quick. Yeah. Like in credit to the girl, she is waiting in her hotel room for her guy to come in with like, you know, chocolates and uh, roses and the dull, have a romantic night or whatever. And instead she gets her clothes torn off and her gun pointed at her face and thinks that he's going to die and doesn't know what the fuck happened. Cause I'm sure Pushkin's not like, Oh, I told that guy to leave and we're going to do this thing later on because he says, you know, sorry, I didn't tell you. So 
she comes out of the bathroom eventually and just being like, what the hell happened? And Pushkin will be like, just don't ask. And then a day later, she's trying to put on a strong face for him to do this speech and he gets shot right in front of her. <laughs> and then he comes back to life and she's at this point, she's like, I want a divorce. <laughs> just kind of like, I can't deal with this stress. I almost got killed. I got my clothes ripped off. You almost got killed three times already. God damn it. You know, yeah, you, know you should have brought lilies. <laughs> but Bond hops into a car with these two girls. They seem villainous at first, but they're not because they take him to go see Felix Leiter. It's been six films since we last saw him in the living, uh, uh live and let die in the living daylights. That's crazy. They, they had to shoot in, uh, that Sheriff J.W. Pepper instead. Right. You know, <laughs> I'm not right. a fan of this Felix. No, he's very um he's very Californian. <laughs> he's well, he's yeah, super eighties. He's got the baby blue windbreaker, he's got that hair, you know. He's got those the two girls with him and stuff like that. It's just very Yeah, those two aren't CIA agents. Don't pretend don't don't tell me yeah. those two are CIA agents. No, they're just there for the party. I went to that spy museum in New York. No, they are not CIA agents. You look at all the different pictures that are up on the screens that you can learn of all the different spies that are in real life, and it's like, oh, I think that that guy could be a clerk somewhere. I think that that woman could be, you know, the librarian kind of thing. Sorry to all the spies out there that are actually attractive. Um, I'm sure you'll just murder me in my sleep. We're going undercover as two hot women. Yeah, that stand out enough that Bond can go, oh, look at them, you know. Um, I like that they went younger for Felix here because he's around the same age range. They could have gotten, you know, the the sort of senior role that they did in Goldfinger. I I never liked the Goldfinger Felix because he just seems like he could be like Bond's uncle, but the guy just has no real charisma. He's a wooden actor, and he disappears basically. He's only in one more shot in the entire rest of the film. I feel like he's about to run off and star in a Rick Springfield video or something. <laughs> he'll be driving down the um, street. He'll have his sunglasses on. His hair will be flowing in the wind because he's got like a convertible and he'll be listening to I wish they all could be California girls. <laughs> Felix is so much better in the next movie. It is. It's night and day. If you had to give this Felix a one to ten score or zero to ten, what would you give him? Uh, five middle of the road. Three probably. I am fully expecting that the lowest score you guys will give Felix in the next one to be like an eight. It, it's it's so drastically different. He's one of the main characters. Um, Sakara gives Bond a martini, shaken of course, and she's acting really weird and she's acting distant and Bond worst timing. Tells her the truth about everything just a little too late because she's drugged a martini and she's called up Yorgi and they come and they grab him. But if he would have said that a minute ago, totally different set of circumstances. Also, piece of shit Yorgi gets the phone call and is just like, oh, fuck, I got to deal with this yeah. now. <laughs> yeah, the call's for you and whatever. It's also, uh, I forgot about this. Um, so for anybody that does follow Smart Cat Moment, just a, a random aside here for pro wrestling side of things. Uh, 
and for anybody who doesn't, I'll give you a little bit of a backstory. There's a character, Bray Wyatt, that is um, a great performer in a lot of different ways. Uh, I'm, I'm a big fan of a lot of the character, but I'm also not a big fan of a lot of the characters booking and a lot of the way that they do things where I've been going on for years at this point about how the character doesn't work out whenever they build him up for a storyline. And for the past five and a half months, they've been setting up a storyline for WrestleMania that I've been harping on about going, oh, I don't want this to be a WrestleMania. It's going to suck. It's going to suck. It's going to suck. And it ended up sucking. And <laughs> my first reaction was to find the clip of Koskov going, I told you the British would believe me. I told you. Ah, <laughs> uh, he, he really is a piece of shit. And <laughs> I, I, the more we talk, the more sad I am that I didn't get to watch him absolutely get his brain splattered <laughs> on something. I thought you were going to say, the more that we talk, the more I think that Tony's like God's cop. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. I told you, Bray Wyatt was going to work out. I told you. <laughs> so at this point in the film, I'll admit, first time I watched it, I was thinking, what the fuck is the going on with this plot? Because we've got Koskov is fake defecting. Whitaker's got a $50 million arms deal. He's talking about diamonds. We got a heart transplant. There's opium in the mix later on. It's a little harder to connect the dots than some of the other films where it's been like, okay, guy's psychotic. He's got fish hands. He wants to live under the sea. You know, <laughs> part of it's just me being a dope, I'm sure, because it's actually one of the simpler plots overall. And I really, really like how deceitful Koskov is. So I actually thought that this is one of the most believable and realistic spy plots where we're not going into space. You know what I mean? Like yeah. We're not dealing with knickknack and the golden gun with one perfect shot. It's, all of this, there's a lot going on, but it's all believable that these threads could be tied. I, I, I don't think it's like it's completely out of the question to try and connect all these dots, but I do understand Tony's perspective, at least from an initial watching of like, okay, where does the opium come from? Like, why does that need to be involved? Like, I know mm -hmm. why it needs to be involved by the end of it. When you watch it, you're like, okay, that's the reason why it's there. But then you also feel like, yeah, but it needed to be there so you get to that point. But actually in the grand scheme of things, it's only there to lead to that point rather than it being like, something that was discussed earlier in the movie or anything along those lines. There's no pretext to it. It's just, okay, these guys who Bond meets up with are also trading opium with, oh, uh, Yorgi, that's that's convenient, isn't it? It's just like... Yeah. It's it's just, it's a lot of circumstances that need to come together because there's no, there's no pretext and there's no indication that Yorgi's doing this stuff on the side. Yeah, it's not like when we get to some films where it's sort of like, okay, well, they've got a, they stole a nuke. Hmm. Like Thunderball is very easy. Stole a nuke, holding people for ransom, pay us a lot of money. Bond, go find the nuke. And then you you just you're off, kind of a thing. Or with um with even like on Her Majesty's Secret Service, which is one of the weirder kind of ones, it's like, all right, Bond wants to go kill Blofeld. By the way, Blofeld is doing this thing where he's gonna try to set up these women and he's gonna do that kind of a thing. And then by that point you're like, okay, well that doesn't really matter because the plot is basically Bond wants to go kill Blofeld. Kind of. And then with this one, you got basically the plot. If anybody is struggling with it, Koskov's going to use the $50 million and 
He's going to swap it for diamonds, trade that for the opium. That'll be worth uh, 500 million and they'll make a profit. Whitaker will still be looped in. They can provide the arms to the Soviets. Nobody will be all the wiser. All the while, Bond is going to kill Pushkin. And then Koskov can trade Bond in for killing Pushkin. So that way he can claim he's been on a secret mission this whole time. He never defected. That was bullshit. And then be a hero and possibly even get Pushkin's job on top of making millions and millions of dollars. Smart. Very smart. It's it's elaborate. It's kind of like when you get like those Joker and Riddler type things where it's like, okay, this has to go this way and this has to go that way. That And it's like, okay, well, it's a lot of planning, but at least it's better than just sort of uh, um, fish guy, you know, kind of like Costco uh, uh, says he holds Bond in great affection. And he says he has an old saying, duty has no sweethearts. And Bond says, we have an old saying too. And you're full of it. Call back to that lunch scene in the man with the golden gun. Remember that whole bit of uh, there's a four letter word and you're full of it. Yep. Mm-hmm. That weird that we're all, at this point in the a review to a kill podcast series that we are calling back to the things many films ago that I'm like remember that. <laughs> kind of. so, so can we talk about the fact the the fake name they give Bond as a patient? <laughs> I love the fake name. <laughs> Jersey Bondov. <laughs> <laughs> I, I missed that actually. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's it's funny. It's yeah. like just like ridiculous. Like who? It's it's just a case of like okay, let's we'll have a bit of fun here because no one's actually gonna care. And the only people that actually look at it and just say, oh, Jersey Bond, which is okay, Jersey. That's a name that you can kind of buy. I don't know anybody that's ever had the surname Bondov. Bondov. <laughs> How just, do we make him seem like that? Oh, add off to the end. <laughs> Yeah, just like, oh, it's Russian 101. You just add of to the end of things, and that's your surname. General World of, uh, there's Koskov, there's Bondov, you know, Oromov later on. So they really love the ovs. It's kind of obvious. That, that's bad. <laughs> I'll admit, that was fucking bad. Tony, that's okay. offensive. Oh, there you go, you saved it. This is obnoxious. <laughs> Obviously, we have to move on. Uh, <laughs> Koskov hands Bond over. He also turns in Kara. What a dick. And they're both locked up, along with this other guy who asks the guard about his appeal. And I <laughs> fucking love this part. Good news. You won't be hung in the morning. You'll be shot. <laughs> I like that. I love that line. I'm less uh, as fond of the second line where he says, it's a mistake. Uh, I've stolen nothing. And he says, you can tell Allah when you see him. Because no. <laughs> that's like, damn, dude. All right. But I love the, there's been a mistake. Good news. You won't be hung in the morning. You'll be shot. <laughs> if I were a prison guard, I'd probably do that kind of shit. You know? Uh, and, and this guy's a, an ass too with that. Because he hits Bond and he goes, I didn't tell you get it, to get down. So Bond starts getting up and he hits him again. I didn't tell you to get up. <laughs> Very quickly, just like that. You're like, can you somebody kill this ass? You know? Uh, but Bond arms the key ring finder. He plays around a little bit. Just they're like, oh, let's, uh, ah, that's funny. You know, kind of back. Stun ga- uh, gas right in the face. We get a little bit of a uh, fight sequence. Good little fight sequence, I think. Yeah, it's, not, it's not too bad. Bond almost gets his head shoved in one of those little needle point things he used for like papers on a desk. 
Something we haven't seen yet. Kara showing uh, Tiffany Case how it's done. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, right after that, too, she gets followed up with, we're free. And he says, Kara, we're in a Russian air base in the middle of Afghanistan. <laughs> but I don't care because she still did something. Yeah. I mean, she hits him with the bucket. So at least she didn't fall backwards like Tiffany. <laughs> Uh, and Bond passes the keys off to the other inmate. It's beneficial when they go to escape because they're ambushed by this Afghani men who are hiding. And the inmate is Kamran Shah, who vouches for them. Bond has a line where he says, uh, but Kara's worrying about if they're going to kill her. And he says, don't worry, they'll save you for the harem. <laughs> I, did, I did the right thing. That's, that's very good. <laughs> but again, Bond's are just a total dick. Just like, really? Yeah, like... they, they, they won't kill you. They'll just fuck you until then. You, you're, you're pointless to them, essentially. Yeah, that's, that's a line that's kind of like, oh, okay. And speaking of like, oh, this doesn't age super duper well. This is the Mujahideen, mm. the Afghan resistance. They're allies in this film for Bond. Yep. And a few years later, we're not celebrating these guys anymore. <laughs> that's for sure. No, like legitimately 1991, four years later after this, you're going into mm. Iraq and Afghanistan and just... Yeah, fucking shit up for them with the weapons that you bought them to fight the Soviets. Yep. <laughs> and uh, kind of one of those Karma. movies that gets Karma. lost in the shuffle because of this, you know? <laughs> There's uh, one of the fit my favorite tracks is uh, the track that they use for the Mujahideen, too. I love the music. Much better than having just Lawrence of Arabia play. I also so, really like the little... Go ahead. I was going to say, Cameron Shaw, when they actually end up meeting him, it's got, well, start talking to him, it's like he changes his accent to be completely British now. Yeah. It's just, <laughs> okay, <laughs> I'd I see why you were undercover for a little while there. <laughs> I like the exchange between Bond and Kara, where she calls him back end of horse. <laughs> Are you calling me a horse's ass? <laughs> yeah, That's cute. I, I, do, I do appreciate that one, because it's kind of like, she's pissed at him but she's not pissed at him because she's pissed at him she's pissed at him because he's gonna go out and get himself killed yeah and she cares about him and so it's like she's angry with him and then okay we'll just angry you get angry then you get upset and then you just learn to just i was like get over it but you just like okay let's not fight in this situation because this dick hasn't got away yet so let's do (laughs) let's do that instead well let me tell you i think that's realistic you know, it's uh, very much more realistic than a lot of the other relationships we've seen Bond have. And there's also yeah, that kind of like you. not necessarily like Stockholm syndrome kind of thing. But like when you go through a traumatic experience, people end up forging a bond that's way stronger than if it's just, you know, they happen to, you know, meet up on OK Cupid or something. And yeah. uh, Bond, James Bond is very strong, Tony, so that doesn't surprise me at all. Yeah, and they, I, I like the whole, the bit, smacking him with the pillow, you stubborn, stupid, back end of a horse, and, you know, why can't you just leave? And he's just like, no, I gotta finish the rest of this, it's my job, you know, kind of a thing. Um, oh, speaking about the score, too, because uh, I forgot that I had this note about just loving the music. John Barry wasn't doing every single movie. Uh, we've seen some other people pop in here and there, most of the ones being like, for your eyes only, or something, where it's like, wow, that sounds really different. It's like, oh, it's because they didn't do 
get John Barry. This is the last time that John Barry scores any of the films. And I'm a huge, huge fan of the score for this. The next movie we get, Michael Kamen. I mean, I absolutely adore the score for the next film, too. And then we get David Arnold after GoldenEye. Uh, I, I like the GoldenEye score, too. But David Arnold is my favorite person who does this. And John Barry is like the most iconic kind of. So they give him a little bit of a cameo in the the final scene just to be like, well, you're not going to do this anymore. We'll, we'll make you the composer in the final scene, which I think is pretty neat. And I think he deserves it. Uh, let's see where we're at. We're at uh, Bond uh, plants a bomb in one of the opium sacks and he gets spotted by Koskov. And we cue an action sequence on the runway. If I'm skipping over anything, let me know. Backtrack. Uh, I mean, it's giving quite a lot of the, I don't know if it's anything that's super, super exciting happens there because it's just him getting aboard the, the truck with the opium so he can plant the explosive in there. And then he just gets, he gets onto there. And I do like the bit where he, essentially he's hidden in the back of the truck and then he just seamlessly walks in as if he was one of the guys to yeah. um, unload the truck. And then he just, and then the guys just look at him and just go, okay. And just, and just confidence. Yeah. He sells it. Just like, oh yeah, well he must have just popped in because he's one of the other ones that's unloading it. Like, cool. Yeah. Bond takes off in the plane, car drives up to him this Jeep thing. I don't know the name of the vehicle. I'm not a car guy either. And um and Bond there, were lower... of, there were a lot of fighting in the horses and bulldozers. But the him uh, <laughs> it was a I think it was a Shah in the bulldozer knocking over a building where two Russians were having a shower. <laughs> Because there needs to be some, con- there needs to still be some more elements thrown into this still. Just in case people are thinking that it's a little bit too serious. Let's make, get a couple yeah. gags in there. Uh, Bond lowers the ramp for her to drive in. And I like how frustrated he gets that she doesn't understand what he means. Because she can't hear him. And he's like, I mean, she's a fucking musician. She wouldn't naturally do any of this shit. And he gets this look on his face like, drive the truck up into, oh, for fuck's sake, kind of a thing. Like, she doesn't do this stuff. You expect her to just drive a Jeep into a fucking plane while it's going? Like, <laughs> come on, Bond, you know? But what, a, what a horse's ass. At a certain point, you lose touch with reality. Yeah. To him, it's like, you just do that. And Kara's like, you know, uh, she's just a cello girl. <laughs> well, I mean, again, it might be one of the areas of this flick, maybe again, overthinking it. We have no idea that she can drive <laughs> in the earlier parts of the movie because she's taking a tram. That's true. So we don't even, and to, and to be fair, considering again, obviously time's different, but considering the fact that she was a woman in Eastern Europe at that point in time, it's not exactly the most likely thing in the world that she would know how to drive. Yeah. And also, she's like, it probably is a stick shift. I don't know if they would have mm. those ones instead. Like, it's, it's, a, it's a Jeep that she's driving at full speed into the back of a plane. Yeah, cut her some slag a little, Bond. <laughs> well, yeah, it's just like, it's just like okay, I understand that we don't want her to be Tiffany Case, where she's so hopeless towards the end of the movie that she can't literally do anything right. But also, like, she's a musician who has shown absolutely, who shouldn't really be showing any real signs of, like, strength, like, super, like, superhuman strength or fighting ability, or to be able to drive a Jeep into the back of a moving plane. 
and yet she does it. This, though, is one of the things that they get into this trope where, and if you like, uh, you do the promotional material, it becomes a real pain in the ass where people really, really like promoting their Bond girl as being the first that's Bond's equal. And to me, this is where you have a healthy enough balance where Kara, the character, is not going to be Bond's equal. And if she is at any point Bond's equal, it's weird because she's just not fundamentally supposed to be. When we get into like other people that are agents and we get into like, you know, we had already seen with like Triple X and Dr. Goodhead, they can hold their own a little bit more because their characters are supposed to. And if anybody would complain and say like, well, Kara should have taken out like 15 bad guys. She's a musician. Why should she be better than, you know, these trained soldiers and stuff. And I'm cool with the moment of her driving up there. It's just still kind of like, at least on bonds end, he shouldn't just be like, just, just do this. It's obvious, you know, kind of a thing. Well, Again, we're dealing with a Bond who, even though he looks about 30 years younger than the last Bond that we saw, is playing the role of, I've been all, I've been through all this shit. I'm tired. (laughs) You know what the fuck, you should know what to do because I know what to do and why doesn't everybody just know what to do? Like, he's so in his own bubble that he can't imagine that somebody wouldn't know how to do these things. Yeah. I mean, I mean, she does do something because, like, when she's driving the truck, I mean, trying to get towards Bond, a guard jumps onto the windscreen, and she does, and she knocks him off with a mixture of just punching him and using the windscreen wipers. Yeah. So She's, she's not incapable, which is good. I'm not, saying, I'm not saying that she shouldn't ever be said as incapable, it's just that maybe yeah. she's doing a bit much. Yeah. Her level, of, her supposed level of ability going into this. It's definitely booked in there's wrestling terms. It's definitely written in a way that's kind of like, let's give Kara a little bit of something kind of, you know, you, you know what? Since we've brought up uh, wrestling terms a couple of times and Bray Wyatt, Callum, the way you've described your feelings about this movie, is this the Randy Orton of films for you? Is it just bland and kind of there? Um, honestly, the way that the more that Tony is describing it, the more I'm appreciating it. You've you right. bumped it up three spots since we've been talking. <laughs> I've noticed. Two spots. Two spots. I'm not lying. <laughs> don't 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 go get, get too far ahead of yourself. I don't think it's going to go any higher than that. But I can understand more of the nuance and appeal to it. But I do still hold that it's honest. Honestly, that I and again we'll talk about it when we get towards the end of it. I think the weakest part of this movie is Bond himself. I think it's just a case of I just don't think Dalton's there yet with the character. That's right. Yeah. And that's and that's why it leaves it a little bit cold to me. It's just, I just don't think he is as strong as he needed to be. And maybe that will change. Like as Tony said, it, he seems to think that it will change in the um in license to kill because he's obviously seen it, so he has a better understanding than I do, and I've got no reason to doubt that <laughs> to be the case. But it's just at the moment I just I didn't think he was particularly strong in this role. And so that's and it, it at seeing he's the titular character of the entire thing, that's a that's a real negative. Do you think that's because License to Kill will be written with Dalton in mind and not, and this movie wasn't? 
I still no, think I, I, that Callum might not like Dalton and License to Kill because he might just be like, I still just don't like that type of bond. But he definitely is less of let's take some of everybody, and he's more so I want to go with this guy. Yeah, and I'll, I'll see that, and obviously it doesn't necessarily mean that I will like it or not not like it, but it just feels at the moment that he is trying to play the role more serious, which means it's a bit more calculated, less charismatic, more just get the job done that type of approach but he's also throwing in stuff like the laser car cutting a car in half and uh skating down or skiing down a a hill on the back of a cello case it just feels it's too all over the place for me and i just don't think his character or the actor himself doesn't fit that type of style that's fair so koskov gets into an explosive car accident and survives. Mm. I was I was so disappointed that I thought that, that was going to be his death. Yeah. Yeah, I was worried at that point that it was just going to be like, oh wow, they're dead. I mean, not they're as disappointed dead. as I was by the end of the movie. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, so I don't want to spoil Godzilla versus Kong, <laughs> but like, <they're... laughs> I'm I'm curious where you're getting this connection from. No, so it's like you remember how the. Some of the bad characters just died instantly, like no build up, no like fight scene. They're just dead. I thought that was gonna happen to him, and I was just like, "Ah, oh, that's bullshit." He should die a horrible death, and then he doesn't die at all. So I'm not sure if I like that more or less. So Bond goes to defuse uh, defuse the bomb since that's it's all in the plane. But so is Necros, and they fight. Uh, they end up dangling out of the plane hanging onto this netting with the bags of opium. And I really like how Necros dies. He's holding on to Bond's boot, and Bond starts cutting the laces, and Necros starts realizing what's going to happen. He's, no, 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 please, no, whatever. Eventually he comes off, and Necros falls to his death, and one of the best screams is, kind of death. Cool way to go out. I mean, I'm a, I'm a sucker for the falling deaths in the Bond series, yeah. so, so that will be just a... Again, this is this is more just the trolling opinion rather than actually wanting to see this. But I would just love to see him just keep falling for about two minutes. That was just—it's <laughs> just hilarious. As I said, like my favorite, one of my favorite scenes in the entire franchise is someone falling down a, a a cliff for about like a minute straight. It's just, yeah. But I think it was good. They they got some good camera shots of him like falling down the side. You still see him falling as Bond gets back into it for a little while. So, yeah, I think it was pretty well shot. Uh, that's where everybody's gone. Out of the airplane. They got the boot. <laughs> yeah, that's the, the quip that they do, because it's, you know, the way that uh, these movies go. You know, what happened? He got the boot. It's the kind of uh, thing. And they almost ran into a, <laughs> a cliff. Out of all the bags that fell out, the one that didn't, <laughs> and it's the explosive one, and Bond diffuses it with just two seconds left. I'm glad it wasn't one second. Just because you got to, you know, change it up at least a little bit. And then Bond's like, oh, you know what? I'm going to use it anyway. <laughs> he uses it to destroy a bridge that helped out Cameron Shaw's man, who are still fighting the Russians at this point. How low was that plane flying when it dropped it? Because <clears throat> he drops it and it falls straight. Which it couldn't be doing on a plane that I assume is going a few, like, a decent amount of miles per hour and it just falls straight down onto the bridge. Yeah. Like, okay, Bond Bond does not only have the magic penis, he also defies the laws of physics. 
Yeah. And he owns base. That's basically <laughs> what we know about Bond. It's added to the list. You know? Bond, Bond controls space, and so he used space here to make sure there was a vacuum so it would just fall straight down rather than have any air resistance on it whatsoever. And since he always manages to diffuse these things with just a few seconds left, he controls time as well. So he is the lord of space-time. He does the bomb for 10 seconds, and it blows up about three seconds later. No wonder he can de-age himself and change time periods. He's uh, like a... I don't know, he should be in Legends of Tomorrow or something. Normally, this would be the end of a movie. Because it seems like it's like, oh, well, we've gotten a lot. But it's not the end. The plane's almost out of fuel. So plant a bomb, defuse a bomb, take out the bad guy, stop yourself from crashing, drop the bomb, and now Bond and Kara have to get into the truck and parachute out the back. But it's it's cool, because Bond knows a great restaurant in Karachi, and they could just make dinner. <laughs> That's a great that, little moment. That was very more, though. It was very more, yeah. Like, that, that didn't click with me. Also, there was a point in this, I forgot to mention it, where she goes, yeah, uh, Car goes. You have to help Bond. He's, uh, they, he's trapped, and she goes off on her own. And they just look at each other and go, "Women, yeah." I go after her. Like, <laughs> A woman. <laughs> now, normally, this would be the end of the movie, but we still have two villains to take care of because Koskov and Whitaker are alive. And Felix. Pops up for one quick thing to help feel uh, Bond sneak into Whitaker's place. And we get another pigeon jump scare because John Glenn, Glenn fucking loves that. <laughs> we got the cliffside pigeon with Fear Eyes Only. We got the double take pigeon with Moonraker. The pigeon that pops up when Bond's escaping Octopussy's Palace. So he's like, look, I got my monkey thing in there and I got the goblin scare, but I still need the pigeon jump scare because it can't be my movie without a pigeon jump scare. Which is just funny to me. And we get another pigeon jump scare in the next movie. <laughs> it's just like this pigeons, like Bond's number one uh, villain that carries in more films than anything else except for Blofeld is pigeons. <laughs> um, we got a good line here. You could have been a live rich man instead of a dead poor one. And Bond and Whitaker have a gunfight, which Whitaker's got all these high tech guns there's even a callback to dr no remember when um uh bond kills professor dent he says that's a smith and wesson you've had your six whitaker says yeah. here you've had your eight now have my 80 it's not I as like good of a line <laughs> i like the I'll I'll have have I, I like it oh i still like the line i just don't think it's as good i think that there's a, a more callous side to the smith and wesson and you've had your six the yeah. you've had your eight i've had now have my 80 is more like Batman Forever. <laughs> yeah, kind of. Still good. It's just, it's a little bit more on the wackier side. It's one of the things I just love about this scene slightly earlier is just when Bond is, he has the gun pointed at Whitaker. Whitaker's just completely unfazed. He's yeah. just looking at his thing still. He's just playing around with his, his toy soldiers. He sees the Bond has just got a gun pointed at him. He's like, okay, let's carry on. Let's start. And he's, just... he's fantasy booking too. He's talking about how he would have done the Civil War. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Just like how he would have, how he would have won it for Napoleon instead, and all this other stuff. And like he talks about how he's happy to hand over Koskov as long as he gets his opium. But Bond says the opium's gone, and that's the thing that really sets him off. Yeah, because their their plot's fucked at that point. Yeah, 
So basically, he just, okay, well, as long as I get what I want, then I, I've got no reason to want to kill you or anything like that. Just just the way that Bond's got him held at gunpoint, and he's just so nonplussed about the whole thing. You just know that this guy's just, okay, this guy is fucking crazy. <laughs> hey, Bond, you want some lobster? <laughs> and Bond kills him with the wolf whistle, where he causes one of the statues to fall on top of him. So there's two deaths in this movie that are based off of crashing glass, essentially. You met his Waterloo. <laughs> yeah, that's it's not my favorite line. <laughs> I this this is one of the most epic deaths of the entire series so far for me. Really? Because so he sets the key explosive on the statue of, of the Duke of Wellington, and essentially um, Whitaker starts talking about how Wellington wouldn't have won without, uh, like I think he said either Dutch or German or Belgian soldiers helping out to disorientate the French and stuff like that and then he does the wolf whistle it blows up onto him and so he falls backwards collapsed under the Duke of Wellington on the stage set of the Battle of Waterloo it's just so unbelievably historically fantastic <laughs> just the idea that okay we can use that obviously the line he met his Waterloo is a little bit like it's a little it's not it's not the greatest line but the idea of just the, how succinct I say succinct how just well put together it is about the guy dying due to the Duke of Wellington statue on the the most famous battle the Duke of Wellington ever fought. So it's just they like yeah. they nerded out over history for that one. For yeah, context, I'm a history, you I'm a history, history graduate. Major. Yes, yeah. yeah. So it's yeah. So yeah, I nerded out over that. It's just oh my god, this fits so well. Living Daylights jumps to number two now. <laughs> no, it won't, it won't do that. But it's uh, it, it's um, I I appreciate the fault they clearly put into that death. And then Bond almost dies to a random goon. If it mm. weren't for Pushkin and his men shooting the guy, Bond's fucked. He's dead. <laughs> I mean, they've had a few things like that in the past. Yeah. Um, so Bond's not invulnerable. The Koskov pops up and he's acting all, oh, General Pushkin, thank God you're still alive. Thank you for rescuing me from Whitaker and all this. And Pushkin says, put him on the next plane to Moscow in a oh, diplomatic bag. <laughs> I wanted to see his brains splattered. <laughs> like, he was such a shitty person. He, we've been using wrestling terms a lot. He was the biggest chicken shit heel in this franchise thus far. And mm-hmm. the fact that he didn't get his comeuppance, I, I don't know if I'm okay with that. Because <laughs> obviously he's either going to prison or death. He's not getting away. Pushkin's got him. But you don't get the satisfaction of him blowing up because of some cute branch gadget or something. Should have used a ghetto blaster on his ass. <laughs> There's just Q pops up. <laughs> <laughs> something from the Americans. <laughs> and that's that's it for Koskov. Um We'll come back around and talk about when we talk about the villains, but Kara's not going to be punished, and she meets General Gogol. He's actually still able to be in the movie, even though Walter, Walter Gotel was sick, and he has arranged for her to have a visa. She can come and go as she likes, because Gogol's the fucking man. And this is the last time that we're going to see Gogol. It's That's actually right. the last time that we're going to see Sir Frederick Gray, the defense minister as well. Um, the guy who played Sir Frederick Ray, he just 
pretty much retired from acting. And Gogol, of course, I mentioned like he was sick. So no more General Gogol, no more defense minister in this series. Pretty depressing. Things are moving fast now. And I think it's a good enough send off for Gogol because they have transitioned him to a different department. He's clearly like he's he's retired, but we're still giving him a job and flat out a good guy in most respects, you know. Yeah, I mean he's like he's part of the he's now part of the Foreign Service. And essentially, I mean, within four ye- three to four years, the Soviet Union isn't even a thing anymore. Mm-hmm. So it's essentially like I know they obviously go back to some Russian villains in in, uh, in the future, but it's not. There's no longer the big USSR focus that there has been across multiple movies so far. And they were going to potentially bring Pushkin back in the next film, just because they were like, "Well, we like him, so like that'd be cool." But they couldn't figure out a way to do it, so we don't get to see Pushkin anymore. So it's not like the character just becomes well. You see Pushkin going forward. No defense minister anymore because they start basically replacing the defense minister with bill tanner and we'll see tanner we'll see charles robinson we'll see Villiers, we'll see some other people um cameron shaw and his guys pop up <laughs> cause a scene everybody's the hell's happening here you know uh, they're late and they missed the concert they had some trouble at the airport <laughs> and m says i can't imagine why and once you look at this movie past 9 11 uh, <laughs> it's, racist, it's racist regardless of whether it's, it's past nine eleven or not. It's racist then, but then it just keeps getting worse as year goes, years go by. Yeah, yeah. Like then it's like, uh, we're being like, you know, we're kind of elbowing you, and then a couple of years later, it becomes like, oh, that would get oh, taken out. Like okay. you would eliminate that scene from the TV uh, yeah, shots. You know, peacock that's getting cut. Right. Know, like- Kind of like how they, they cut the whole thing of the Twin Towers sequence from Spider-Man because they were like, no, nope, don't want to show them. They would cut this, for sure. Uh, Kara's sad. Bond's on an assignment abroad. He's not able to check out anything there abroad. And uh, when she goes to her room, she sees two martinis. And she whistles. You know, just to get the key ring, find her to beep. And Bond says... You wouldn't think that I'd miss this performance, do you? And we get the traditional oh James and a vocal rendition of the love theme. So she knew Bond was there already. When she went into the dressing room. Oh, I mean, they start because they start because they start talking about oh Bond's an assignment and she hurriedly heads to the dressing room because she knows that Bond's there instead. See, I never took it that way. I was took it at that she's upset, so she goes there to cry. Maybe, but I, I kind of. You're giving her a lot of credit. She goes to cry. <laughs> no, no, I. I she goes. Where's like... your gift? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I generally get the impression that like as soon as they mention Bond, she kind of like remembers that he's there and she says like, "Oh, quick! I've got to um, I must go to the dressing room quickly." And then she just gets there and then because she seems to like just be straight ready to do the whistle and stuff like that, so. I think the uh, martini I, I, is what makes her go. Wait a minute! I think that's what that whole part's for. Oh, I, I, I didn't, I didn't clock any kind of like her seeing the martinis and then getting a sense of it. I just felt like she knew that he was already in there and she was trying to get away from them because he's supposed to be on assignment abroad and he's actually there instead. So she was trying to essentially, oh, I better get to this quickly before they start suspecting that he's around or anything like that. 
So they were thinking about doing another Margaret Thatcher type gag where it would have been Prince Charles and Princess Diana. And I'm so glad that they didn't. <laughs> oh, that would have gone over well. Yeah, I, I, I like this ending so much more. <laughs> I don't know what they would have planned, but it would have been some kind of thing, I'm sure, where they were there and, you know, some kind of thing. But I, uh, no. And like I said, vocal rendition of the love theme, just to kind of end things off like that. And Kara's not the type of Bond girl that I would think like, oh, Bond can stay with her forever. And that could be this big send off kind of thing. But I think it's sweet. It's kind of like, oh, well, you know, at the very least, like she'll move on. She's got her musician career and she and Bond will have a little fling for a little bit. And things are good in the world. Gogol's cool. And like, you know, (laughs) I love this movie. I thought it was really, really good. I've decided right now it's at the top of the list. It's hard because I would like I have Goldfinger up top because it's to me, the standout Bond film that, like, sets the tone for all Bond films. But this was just a really enjoyable movie that I would probably watch again out of sheer enjoyment. It's a good to very good movie. I still won't give it... Like, I I won't go as high as a great thing because, like I said, I don't think that the Bond character himself is as strong as he's been in other movies. I don't feel that... Even though I appreciate the depth they gave to the Kara character a little bit more and gave her more of an arc, I don't think she was a particularly strong Bond girl in the classical sense of the phrase. And I think that they underutilised the uh, potential that Whitaker had. But other than that, it's it's is a well told story. There is some there are some really good points as well. I think it jars too much between the the kookiness, the wackiness of the more movies and the more serious tone that they seem to want to be going in with Dalton, and that brings it down a little bit for me. But I I definitely would be fine watching this again, and it's it's again it's not a bad movie. It's totally totally fine, but I wouldn't put it near the top for me. It's we'll currently. Callum's number five, Rob's number one, and my number one. I will spoil. I know that there are the next two movies I rank above this, and there's another movie that I rank above it, and potentially one other one. So this is most likely, and it's usually whenever I rank the films, this ends up coming out as my number five. But we'll get around to those when we get around to them. Um, I think I wouldn't be surprised if the next two films for me immediately take the number one spot, I know for a fact Goldeneye will. I just don't know yeah. if <laughs> License to Kill will. It's Goldeneye. So they, it's like, yeah. There's only two more movies that I know of that are definitely going to take the top spot. And I'm curious to see if anything that comes before or after the one that I'm talking about will actually take the spot. I'm going to venture a guess and say that you're going to put The World is Not Enough over The Living Daylights, but it might not be. I don't know. I still think that that's one of the ones that I, I, I could see. I could see Rob having that higher up than than Callum, for instance. Well, I, I can only say for, I know for certain that there are two movies based on what I've previously watched that are going to go ahead of what I currently have as number one. Yeah, two really good movies 
eventually coming up. Oh no, well, I'm not talking about those two anyway. I'm talking about way further down the line. No, yeah, I'm well. One of them's one of the ones that I, I'm talking about it too. There's two oh, in the Craig uh, side of things that yeah, are going to go above. It is those two in the Craig ones, I assume. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, Quantum of Solace is so good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sure. <laughs> I think, no, I was just as Batista. Yeah. yeah. You can't even say that one. <laughs> it's I like, oh, what does Quantum of Solace which, have? Which, which, uh, which jump cuts? Was in, there, there was someone like that in Quantum of Solace, wasn't there? Not a wrestler, but like, whichever the henchman was. No. Nah. No, the henchman is named Elvis. Oh. Okay. <laughs> yeah. That, that, that goes to show how much I paid attention to that movie. All I Quantum. know is there's one giant pipe in it at some point. Quantum is. Uh, Quantum I, I is f- the writer's track film, is it? There's. Uh, I forget what, I, what I've referred to a whole bunch of times. I think it's maybe Die Another Day. Die Another, uh, Die Another Day is like 60% an amazing Bond film and 40% utter garbage. Mm-hmm. And Quantum of Solace is like 30% an amazing Bond film and 70% crap, kind of. They're equally honest, bad in different ways. Earlier, I'm ready to eviscerate the Sigmund Freud line. Mm, yeah. Another day. Well, music side of this thing, though, major thumbs up. Oh my god, amazing! Yep. Can't can't criticize any bit of it, really. The gadgets we got: the miniature binoculars and the eyeglass frames. We got the night vision goggles. We got the big sniper rifle. We got the. The other binoculars and the other binoculars, we got the milk bottle grenades, we've got revolving sofa, the keychain, the silent alarm watch, the car, the ghetto blaster. Thumbs fucking way up. Yeah, this is the best gadget film thus far. I thought the the whistle apparatus was very practical. I like the key, even though it only opens 90% of locks. I thought the stupid bit with the couch was funny and I legitimately think the ghetto blaster is my favorite thing <laughs> I've seen thus far because it's so ridiculous yeah the gadgets are a, a, a real positive for this movie so can't criticize that on the allies side of things we got Q, M Sir Frederick Gray, Moneypenny Gogol, Pushkin Cameron Shaw, Saunders 004, 002, Felix Leiter, and Rosika. I mean, by short, uh, sheer numbers, <laughs> it's a thumbs up. Because I like all of them. I'm not a big fan of this Felix. He's the lowest out of the bunch. 002 and 004 are, they're, they're nothing. And they're our regular cast of, you know, M and Sir Frederick Gray and whatever, like, nobody's going to be like, Sir Frederick Gray is my favorite ally out of the whole bunch, but it works. Cameron Rosica's Shaw's kind of... Great. I mean, she gets the job done. For who? Rosika? Yeah. Rosika, yeah. She's memorable. Pushkin's cool. Gogol is just awesome in his own kind of way. Saunders is a likable guy when he gets killed. Q's having some more fun. Money Penny's fawning over Bond. It, thumbs up. Yeah, yeah. I, I can't say that. I'm enamored with... I'd say most of them, but I I like the majority of them. But there are a couple of them that are really weak and just not particularly either endearing or given enough character development to really care about too much. And I kind of would add Money Penny to that list as well. I just don't think Money Penny is given really anything in this movie to make her stand out. Yeah. 
like she's a very this movie is basically saying okay what's money penny's characteristics oh she's in love with bond and that's basically it mm-hmm. that's like she has no real i guess uh personality of her own she doesn't get better in the next one either no be I, honest. I, I didn't expect to when we, we switch over to goldeneye there's more of a thing but so it's thumbs up all around for the allies right yep yep uh the bond girls i mean technically we just talked about money penny but there's also linda <laughs> i mean she's hey you wanna fuck <laughs> that's basically it um and Kara. uh Kara is a major major thumbs up for me she is one of my absolute favorite bond girls uh, she's currently my number five ranked underneath money penny fiona dr goodhead and pussy galore although to me the pussy galore and Kara thing are kind of like i could go back and forth on any particular day, because sometimes I really, really like the Pussy Galore character, and other times I'm like, you know, she's overrated. But I think that she does a better job of being the Domino role than Domino does. So, I have her just above Domino. Doesn't Domino actually get the kill? She gets the kill, yeah. But, I mean, I wouldn't picture Kara popping up. Somebody should have gotten the kill, okay? Like, (laughs) very mad that we didn't see that character die. Does she still get a uh, thumbs up for you, though? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, yeah, she's definitely a thumbs up. Uh, Bongo. I think I have a, again, putting the outlier money penny to one side, she's sick of the quote-unquote one-off Bongos for me. You currently have Tracy, number one, Fiona, Domino, Dr. Goodhead, Triple X, and then Kara, for anybody who wants to know. I, I, I do have to say right now that it's very unlikely. There's only one person that I from what I've seen so far, that's going to knock Tracy off top spot, but it's going to very much depend on the movies that I haven't seen to see whether that's the case. Yeah, Fields. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody's ranking Fields that high. <laughs> Sorry. No Christmas, obviously. No, God, even worse. <laughs> nah, we're we're all, I think, going to be in agreement. Once we get to Casino Royale, we're going to be like, all right, there goes number one. You know? <laughs> um. Also, just as far as like the attractiveness scale of things, too, uh, Domino is my number one still at this point in the game, and Kara is my number two because she is she's girl next door ish, but she is just so pretty and cute. I'm just like, oh. I think, especially given the descriptors you've used for her throughout this entire podcast, Kara is like the one that I can see you most likely trying to settle down with. Oh, totally. Yeah. I mean, sorry, like, uh, Ruby, you know, like, not a chance. Ruby Bartlett. I'd be like, all right, I'm done. Eat your chicken and, you know. Um, uh, not a thumbs up on Linda for me. She's one of the least memorable girls that pops up. Just, just supposed to look good. She's not as high up to me. I think that they could have. She's not a looking girl or anything like that. But to me, she's. I have her just above Money Penny and below Kissy Suzuki. It's not memorable. I like the lines. Yeah. Well, it's just so boring out here, Margot, and all that. But that's just because I love this movie. So she stands out a lot more than like the receptionist in For Your Eyes Only or something. On the villain side, we got Necros, Koskov, and Brad Whitaker. I think that Necros is a pretty damn good henchman. He's not as anywhere near as good as, you know, Oddjob or uh, Mayday or Jaws or Fiona. 
but Necros holds his own. I put him above Teehee, for instance. Yeah, I, I like Necros. He does get the job done. He does kill a few people, so he's clearly a well-trained assassin. I think the, the fight scene with Bond is pretty good as well. I can't say he's particularly standout-ish, though. There's nothing, there's nothing odd about him. I don't have an odd job or anything like that, but there's nothing... I like my um, henchmen to have some sort of deformity or free, or some sort of um, mm-hmm. element to them which makes them stand out as like, oh, Bond has to deal with their superpower, essentially. And this guy's just, okay, this guy's just pretty strong. And he's a good fighter. When Bond is dealing with blonde henchmen, he's <laughs> usually good in the fight department, but bland in the character department. And very much the case with Necros. Whitaker Callum's definitely a big fan. You have him. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Where's he yes. ranked? Uh, where's he ranked for me right now? I have him ranked. Oh, you have him actually a lot lower than I thought you would. Well, because at, at the end of the day, he's he's not in it enough. Yeah. So I so if he was given more scenes and there was like he was the big bad at the end of it, then he probably would be pushed up. But at the end of the day, like Kananga, Scaramanga, Zorin, Largo, all the well, all the good Blofeld. Even like Cleb and Goldfinger, they're just they're part of the movie more, and they're more aggressive towards them. I mean, I might I might move Whisker at some point above Cleb. It was kind of like between these three that I was kind of trying to position them. But at the end of the day, Whisker doesn't isn't involved enough in the movie, and his death hap like he doesn't have like a big confrontation with Bond. He has one confrontation with Bond, and he's dead two minutes later. <laughs> it's I think they spent too much time on the movie on the wrong villain because Koskov really he should have just been there to get killed and be the kind of smarmy little shit of the operation Whitaker since he was the brains I don't think they played on that enough and like Callum says maybe if they did he'd be more up there right now I'm probably gonna put him just below Karanga, so it's it's gonna be right in the middle for me. Kananga. I, you got a typo in there. I, I don't know yeah. why I have it as Karanga. Karanga. <laughs> this is a typo. Uh we we're not showing you the screen right now. We'll eventually show you like a template thing of this kind of stuff, but I've got Whitaker as my number thirteen villain between Kamal Khan and Dr. No, because we spend more time with Kamal Khan, and I definitely like Whitaker a little bit more than Dr. No, but I can't rank him too high. Koskov, though, I've got him at number five at the moment, because I think that he just does such a great job. Yaron uh, Krabbe is so unlikable that it's hard not to root for this guy to get his just cause at the end of the film. And yeah, I mean, it's kind of like... It's not as strong of a death sequence or anything, but Koskov being the type of character that you can watch throughout this whole film and be like, this ass, can somebody kill him? You know, that kind of a thing. I like Koskov a whole lot more. Uh, Callum's got him lower than Whitaker and Rob's got him a little bit above, right? I think, yeah. Yeah. I, I think he's a little too camp for this kind of role. Even more so than Fishman? Well, in an alternate universe, (laughs) he's J.W. Pepper. You know, like, 
he could go either way because he's kind of a just the same level of a piece of shit. Like, ah, Dems Democrats, uh, Dems <laughs> Democrats, Maribel. Like, in alternate universe, he's just camp. But because he's got the statue of Hitler alone, like, he's <laughs> what a fucking dick. What? Well, I, just, I just go with the idea of I don't feel like when I see Koskov and I see Whitaker, I don't think Koskov is the main villain. And to take a um, Lord of yeah. the Rings analogy version of this, he's the worm tongue to Whitaker's Saruman. There's been a long debate about which one's the main villain. That's why I have them both down. When we get to like, say, I mean, from some of the other movies, like Goldfinger, flat out the main villain. No debates. Emilio Largo, definitely the main villain, unless you count. Blofeld, because he's the guy behind the scenes. He's the Sauron. Um, a lot of Lord of the Rings things today. Yeah. Uh, Scaramanga, definitely the main villain, because nobody cares about high fat. But like, it's kind of shared between Whitaker and Koskov. Koskov's the guy with the, he's the man with the plan, but Whitaker's bankrolling the whole thing. And he is the one that gets the ultimate fight sequence. So there's a debate for both. It's definitely not Necros. <laughs> Although, again, does his job very well. A yeah, great so, three-pronged attack. I Overall, I give the villains thumbs up, for sure. Yeah, this whole movie is very much shaken. Yeah, the thumbs up for the villains. On the action and the music side of things, I think the action's a step up. I think the... Or not the action and music, the action and humor. Uh, I think that the the humor... I personally think that it's great. I can understand if it's a little too like, well, it's a little too Roger Moore-ish for the kind of thing, but I still give both thumbs up on action and humor. Uh, I'm going to give thumbs down on humor. Like I didn't, I don't think it was meant to be a humorous film. And when it tried to, it almost came across jarring. Yeah. I don't think it goes as far as like a thumbs down for that, but it's more thumbs in the middle for, the um, humor side of things. I just feel he's a bit too straight laced when he's trying to be the serious side of it. And then he does have a few good lines, obviously, but then it devolves a little bit into the more territory every now and again. So there's no real, I guess, consistency, I would say. How about the action? Very good. Oh, yeah. I would say outside of the, some of the car chases, which were again, a bit too, a bit too of attempts of the more base comedy, but I think the actual fight scenes are very good. Yeah, very good. Very immediately when you see that fight with the random security guard, you're like, "Oh, this is a different film." I like, I like the more violent approach to Bond. We are going to get so much more violent in comparison. <laughs> like I said, that's next movie just goes, "Let's go PG thirteen, and it's even got one of the more violent titles. "License to Kill" is uh, it's a different thing a lot of people don't like it because of that a lot of fans were very turned off and some people it is weird that we're in this thing with dalton because dalton's the only one who did two so like lazenby that's his one shot it's over take it what it is connery you got some good ones you got some bad ones more you've got some good ones you got some bad ones brosnan you got some good ones you got some bad ones craig you've got some good ones you bad ones dalton is almost like it's either for yeah for either like for somebody like me it's like 
there's two of your favorites. Some other people are like, I hate those two, so Dalton sucks. And some other people are like, well, this one's good and that one's bad, so he's a 50-50 shot. It's, he's all over the place when it comes to how people rank him. It's very interesting. So I'll be really curious to see how License to Kill turns things around, either for the, the better or the worse or a 50-50 split or something. But uh, that's, uh, that's Living Daylights. And that's you know, shaken all the way around, right? Oh, yeah. Yep. Shaken, maybe. So, rounding things out here, remember, everybody, if you want to hear more from us from this and more from anything on Fanboys Anonymous, share your support by liking and sharing and favoriting and subscribing and following and donating to the Patreon and sponsoring the fact that we could do more things going forward. The more support on Patreon we have, the more that we can bring you. And I can guarantee that because that's just how it works. The less time I have to work on other projects, the more I can to figure out how to record myself playing the GoldenEye game and doing a, a bunch of videos like that or trying to get these guys, for instance, to to do like, maybe we'll do like a GoldenEye source type of a thing or something, but uh, I need to have the time to be able to sort that stuff out. And when there is support on Patreon, then I can dedicate the time to that. So if you want more, that is the best way to show it. It's also a real big morale booster too. So keep that in mind and follow everything else that's happening on Fanboys Anonymous on the movie side of things like the movie reviews and the fan outs tables or fan tracks, I should say. Uh, plenty of things coming your way. You're going to be hearing this towards the end of April, or actually, no, you're going to be hearing this in May, I think is when we're uh, releasing this a couple weeks from now. So hopefully by so then, right you'll now have, we should have a Mortal Kombat out and more than likely Mortal Kombat. Yeah. Cause this will be, I don't know, four weeks from now or five weeks from now, something like that. So this will be maybe May 7th or May 14th. So yeah. Mortal Kombat should be in the works or up at the very least. And you know, what else is happening? You'll see. Um, if you follow me at Tony Mango, you'll see everything else that I'm doing both on here and on Smartout Moment. So follow me there. Follow what these guys have going on for their different projects and their social media accounts and everything like that. Callum is over on Wigmeister14 on Twitter. Yep, you can find me at Wigmeister14. Check out all of the articles at SmartoutMoment.com. Power rankings. Again, if you're interested in the wrestling side of things, of course. But even if you're not, maybe just check it out anyway. Gets us a few, gets a few extra clicks. Um, other than that, if you are more interested in the wrestling side of things as well, then there is an archive in the uh, Smart Camo YouTube channel and on the podcast feeds for both 2001 A Wrestling Odyssey and the Paul Heyman Smackdown podcast, where we, me and Rob have gone back in time to those uh, to the years like 2001 to 2003, pretty much inclusively, and covered all of the great wrestling stuff that was happening at that point in time. So if you're interested in retro wrestling, check those stuff out. Yeah, and... You can follow me on Twitter at DudeFelice. You should check out these guys live on camera for their WrestleMania review if you haven't already. Because uh, they pull out some surprises and a whole lot of character. <laughs> and I enjoyed it. Uh, you can also check out everything I'm doing over at Fightful.com and WrestleZone.com. And just keep clicking around. Hopefully we get to do more fanboy stuff. And I thank you for your support. Should we start calling you Sheriff C.W. Pepper? We can. <laughs> I don't know if he's going to take but the then I'll be using my, uh, And then I'll be using my license to kill later on. So, so. <laughs> 
Well, that'll do us in for this. Thank you for listening to all of these episodes and all the other kind of support that you guys give us. But um, that's it for Living Daylights. We and James Bond and the Review to a Kill podcast will return with License to Kill. Thank <laughs> you.